Greetings ladies and metal gents and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. This episode will contain TFOS 1080 to 1093. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1080. Story number one. Convoy, written by Rosie013. As usual, things had gone from bad to worse. The difference, Svet noticed Riley, was that this time no one could blame him for it. The crap box excuse of a hauler that was his livelihood may have its own faults, but this time it was the new species ship that was holding the convoy back. He hadn't given any of the other ships his attention when the group was assembled, as was his norm, but Svet found he suddenly had an interest in who was trying to get them all killed. That was normally his job. Its designation made no sense. It must have translated poorly. A kind of name was nesting doll for a cargo vestal. The visual feed showed it was an ugly thing. A human ship looked like it had been rescued from a salvage yard and could barely keep up to begin with. No doubt, they had bought it for an exorbitant sum by someone claiming that it was spaceworthy. At least the newcomers had tried to make an effort to paint over the patchwork hull but its dubious condition was still woefully obvious. Now that one of its four primary thrusters appeared to be malfunctioning and spluttering on its senses, the whole group had been reduced from the already dangerous 90% standard fleet speed his own boat was managing of to a nearly leisurely 70% speed. The pirates who frequented this area would have a field day. Feeling oddly guilty, Svet glanced at the communications console. He had long since muted its alert tone, tired of always being blamed for holding up whatever group that he was traveling with, as well as the empty threats to leave him behind. Now this new race was facing the anger and fear of the other captains. Their species had provided warships to patrol for pirates, and as such their freighters were welcomed in the safety of the trade lane convoys like any other. They would not get left behind, no matter how much the other ships wanted to. But that didn't stop them from slowly falling to the more vulnerable rear of the shoal of the ships. His Skinner double-checked the readout over his subordinate shoulder, just to make sure. Us, another fleet of goods trundling along his space lane. These ones weren't even trying to tear through the momentum alone. They were actually lumbering along at more sedate pace and would be easy to hold up. Suspicious. The grotesquely fat pirate king slumped into his command throne and took a moment to run a bejeweled claw over the oily facial fronds, mulling the situation over. There were no warships in the area. His contacts in the consortium regularly updated him to their movements, or motors free of cost. They weren't broadcasting the codes to indicate that they were willing to pay his toll either. Maybe they had grown careless. It had been quite a while since he had ordered slaves taken, or even had a ship destroyed outright. The more Skinner thought about it, the more it made sense. His youthful days of ruling by fear were long over. He preferred the toll and tribute method for some time now. He idly stroked his gut's massive girth. Both himself and his prey had grown fat of the arrangement, it seemed. 
time to remind everyone who was in charge then. As the orders were given and the skillful but unhurried crew made preparations, his Skinner reviewed the fleet of cargo ships before him. It hadn't taken long to decide who would pay the ultimate price to keep the others in line. The spasming scrap heap at the back was at least likely to yield any cargo of value, although there was at least one that looked to be an acceptable loss if the merchants didn't cower to his opening move. Sidle up to the space lane, torpedo the scrap heap in a fiery display of might and rob the rest at gunpoint, just like the good old days. His species equivalent of a smile played across his face. It had been too long since his last proper hunt. Svet let out a long groan of annoyance as the nearly inevitable presence of the transponderless ship appeared on the sensors. At a glance, this one had the energy profile of a modified mining vessel. The upgun ship was closing fast, but would not have been able to catch them moving at full fleet speed, and only maybe if they were moving at his maximum of 90%. At a lowly 70, they might as well have been dead in the black for all the hope that they had. Svet's first instinct was to accelerate away as much as he could. Safety of the convoy be damned but he couldn't bring himself to follow through with that plan. His own hide had been saved many times by the presence of a reluctant convoy staying with his own speed. He couldn't bring himself to abandon the new human species of the same fate. That and the legal consequences of abandoning the convoy. He would never be trusted enough to find work again. Just as Svet was trying to think of other options when a new reading appeared on the screen unpowered mass detected in the wake of the convoy. Had the pirates opened fire? There was no telltale energy spike. Wait. Yes, there was, just not from the unidentified vessel. With realization, he refocused his senses on the human ship in dismay. It was beginning to tear itself apart as the crew overclocked its engines to the maximum and began shedding hull. The fools were gonna kill themselves in their panic. There was no point in trying to contact him. The communications console was as busy as he'd ever seen it, as the other cargo ships tried to calm the panicking newcomers, and were utterly ignored. Svet could only watch in muted horror as the nesting doll began to open its cargo base to space, its crew seemingly determined to save themselves by dumping whatever cargo they'd carried into the void. But after a moment, the spill of cargo containers didn't come, Instead, there were... cannon? Before he could question his own eyes, the partially revealed warship fired a rolling broadside volley that utterly annihilated the approaching pirate ship in an explosion so bright that the senses were momentarily overwhelmed. After remembering that he still needed to breathe, Svet watched as the camouflaged cruiser restowed its projectile cannons behind its false cargo bay doors. Its energy reading was steady now, as its two newly uncovered thrusters remained visible and active. All six of the vessel's thrusters now performing evenly and at optimal performance as it moved ahead of the convoy. It was the only indication that anything had happened on board that the ship at all. The range of emotions that flowed through Svet was immense. As it all caught up to him, surprised that the Umans had set a trap for the pirates, anger, that he'd been part of the bait, 
Yeah. As he realized that any human ship could be secretly a warship. The rest of the convoy clearly felt the same shock. As, in direct contrast to just seconds prior, the communications console sat inactive. He made to increase his speed to 90%, as his ship was now the slowest again, now that the ruse was dispelled. Sweat also made a mental note not to price gouge the next human customers he got. Probably not a good idea to provoke a species capable of such thought-out, large-scale, underhanded tactics. End of story. Story number two, Interspecies Reproduction, written by Walt Mind. I don't rightly understand humans. We've known them for, uh, oh, 17 galactic standard years now, or about 25 years according to the native Soul 3, or uh, Earth as they name it. In the time since they left their own gravity well, they've colonized hundreds of worlds and joined other sofons on a thousand more. In fact, to an extent beyond any other known species, they've accommodated members of other species in their own colonies and communities, and formed close connections with most. And the most assorted livestock and pets, as they like to call them, it's estimated that humanity in their own communities might be a politically dominant species, but not the numerically dominant one. Even pre-space fight that excludes unwanted pests and parasites like their uh, insects and uh, rodents. But I digress. I was charged by the Science Council to make a study on human interfidelity with other species. It would appear humans have made extensive documentation on which species are capable of producing viable offspring with them. They are, in fact, the first to my knowledge to meticulously study the phenomenon. While children of mixed blood have not been unheard of for prior to humanity's arrival on the scene, there's never been extensive studies on the phenomenon, much to my annoyance. So I made it to Earth and consulted with the geneticists and asked what manner of genome charging that they had started out with for their research. Oddly, most of them looked either confused or embarrassed, and none would give me a straight answer. It took three weeks of asking and me digging until I was finally directed to the right database. If one could call it that, on their, uh, internet. As a rather sophisticated information network for the time at which it was initially developed. I was puzzled at the entries, scratching my head as I read. Sachskzy, cat-like bipeds, roughly six to seven feet tall, confirmed offspring, enthusiastic, bring back teen, this goes for men and women. Ogroy, hamster-like bipeds, about four feet tall at most, confirmed offspring, gentle lovers, but guys, I hope you want a big family. Ladies, don't worry about the last part. Gakwaz. Reptilian-looking bipeds, seven foot tall and five wide. No confirmed offspring, presumed incompatible. Warning, it's almost impossible to distinguish between the sexes, and the males are not picky and can go on for hours at a time. The list went on. Entries made by random individuals, seemingly with no medical or scientific background at all. I finally cornered a researcher who directed me to the database and asked, uh, I'm not sure I understand the... if I understand the database's format properly. Where are all the genome data, the researchers' credentials, the accredited research laboratories, and the peer reviews? 
He looked at me, blushing slightly. Um, that's the thing. See, um, that foreign my I pointed to you is, um, well, it's filled out by, uh, uh volunteer field operatives who have taken it upon themselves to, uh, uh as, as the human saying goes, feck around and find out, um, in a slightly more literal manner than the saying is usually intended. I stared at him blankly, trying to still piece it together. You mean these people are paid to go out and uh, proliferate at random? He shook his head. No, uh, not paid. Uh, someone on the forum said it was a labor of love. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1081 Human for Hire Written by Zephyl and Dantus. Welcome. He slowly opened his eyes to find himself sitting in a small room. Apart from the chair he was sitting on, a desk and the chair on the opposite side of the desk, occupied by an individual that was either a male with delicate features or a female with rugged features. The room was completely naked. I, um, thank you, he stammered. I have news for you, sir. They are, however, unfortunately mixed. He nodded slowly while his eyes struggled to gather information on where he was. The desk was of a dark and stained wood and had a green felt mat on the surface. There was also an inkwell with a white feather pen in it and a triangular brass sign facing him that read, Administrator. The administrator was wearing a white toga with a loosely fastened with a small copper brooch that resembled a dove's wing. He looked down at himself and realized that he was naked, which, uh, hardly enough, didn't bother him at all. His eyes caught the administrator's news, he heard his voice ask carefully. The administrator offered an apologetic smile. Yes, well, um, it coughed carefully into its fist. You're dead, sir, obviously. Obviously, he felt panic rise in his throat. Oh, the administrator seemed genuinely surprised. Tell me, how much do you remember? It asked as it opened a drawer on its side of the desk. He found the sound of wood against wood, soothing. Um, nothing? He shrugged in a defeated manner. Right, the administrator smiled softly at him. That's unusual, but not unexpected. Let me help fill you in on some of the blanks. It pulled down a brown cardboard folder from the drawer and placed it on the table. He nodded in response. Your name is, well, was Joseph, surname not important. The administrator read from the file. Born on the North American continent to a happily married couple. Finished primary school, high school, and college without making any aggravating missteps and trained to be an accountant. It paused and gave him a reassuring look of approval. You relocated to a large city on the east coast and saved up enough to buy a two-bedroom apartment a ten-minute walk from your office. Your daily life consisted of waking up, walking to work, doing your tasks with an admirable intelligence, and then walking home, ordering food and tending to your three houseplants. The administrator cocked an eyebrow and closed the file placed it on his left side of the table and procured a new file from the still-open drawer. He placed the new file on the desk and leaned on it with both forearms, its hands gently cupping each other on the table. Nothing concerning in your life report, so that's good news. Joseph nodded. He felt less lost now that he had a name, one that had a familiar ring to it. 
Now the end of life report. The administrator smiled again and opened the new file. Oh my! It gasped under its breath. Joseph leaned forward in the chair. It might not be good news, but at least it would be news. It says here, the administrator began after a soft swallow, that you got up one morning and headed off to work. That morning, however, you had forgotten a folder at home, and about halfway through your on-foot commute, you realized this and turned around to walk back. This happened just before an individual with a knife stepped out of an alleyway to relieve you from your earthly belongings. Joseph relaxed back in his chair. So, um, I was stabbed to death. But no, your turnaround discouraged the individual from pursuing you as a target, and you arrived safely home where you retrieved the folder. This left you with very little time to return to the office, so you took the stairs in a sprint instead of the elevator. On the last flight of stairs, you lost your balance and I tripped and broke my neck. Joseph leaned forward in the chair, trying his best to be a participant in the tale of his demise, instead of an audience. Yes, and no, you tripped, but the doorman had heard you running down the stairs and he caught you mid-fall. You ended your descent with a sore ankle, thanked him, and limp ran to the office where you managed to be behind your desk just in time for shift start. The administrator seemed almost apologetic that Joseph had misguessed the event. You really can't remember any of this. No, uh, sorry. Joseph tried to crawl into himself in embarrassment. That's okay. The administrator took a breath in and turned the page over in the folder before it continued. That day, the early warning system for the extraterrestrial objects had a malfunction, and a meteor, large enough to completely destroy the state you lived in, made it past the satellite defense, heading directly to your city. Fortunately, the military were vigilant and managed to break the meteor into several smaller fragments which would do, comparatively, less damage on impact. One of these fragments struck the building you worked in around noon, completely annihilating the floor you worked on. Joseph nodded, silently accepting that his death was a painless and instantaneous, when the administrator continued. Fortunately, you were outside the building enjoying a lunch in the sun when this happened. Unfortunately, you did not have the stamina to escape the falling debris and were subsequently trapped under the building as it fell on you. The words had caused a brief and awkward pause in Joseph's nodding, then resumed with a shaken wobble of his head. It took several days for the rescue teams to dig down to where you were trapped under the debris. Time that you passed by rationing your lunch, eating your lunch break paperwork, and drinking firstly your tea and then your bodily fluid expulsions. The administrator wrinkled its nose in a mental image. Imagine that, it muttered before continuing. They managed to get you fixed under a rescue stretcher, not that it was needed. You were exhausted, but otherwise unscathed and proceeded to evacuate you from the collapsed building. Joseph had given up participating at this point and had resigned himself to listen and nodding at the appropriate intervals. As the rescue team carried your stretcher out, one of the EMTs tripped and fell. Your stretcher rolled over in the air and protruding piece of rebar made terminal contact with your esophagus. Joseph sighed with relief. So... Uh, it was an accident. Good, he smiled. Well, the administrator wiggled uncomfortably in his chair. There is a slight technicality, which was debated at length on, on our end, it shrugged. 
An unspoken apology made it through the table. You see, um, the accounting firm that you were employed at was part of a conglomerate that was owned by an investment fund alongside a large number of other companies. A clause in your employment contract stated that, in the event of your demise, should no relatives be available to raise hereditary claims, your physical remains would fall under the property of the owners of the firm. The administrator's face had a very brief look of pity flash across it. Since your parents had both passed and you had no other relatives, your head was cryogenically preserved and stored in a laboratory in a county that did not have active legislation against preserving the remains of foreign nationals for scientific experimentation. The administrator put the folder down on top of the life's report and then folded his hands in the green felt, once again resting his forearms on the table. The debate went on, Apia. It gestured around the empty room with the finger for a couple of centuries, but ultimately a ruling was made by the highest authority, and it was not in your favor. Joseph straightened his back in the chair. Highest authority? he asked. Yes, well, um... The administrator pointed a careful finger towards the ceiling and rolled its eyes upward in time with the minute words, You know, um, the creator, it said as Joseph's gut hit a metaphorical floor. God uh, ruled against me, he asked with a defeated tone. We try not to use religion-specific denominators. The creator prefers to be considered, um, omnifluid. But, uh, God? The question was high-pitched and point of being a whine. Please, Joseph, the creator has been somewhat moody due to recent events. There is no need to irk it further with the risk of preemptive smiting. I am already dead, apparently, yes, but not removed from existence. Joseph deflated in the chair and shrugged. Fine. Good, now, uh, where was I? The administrator leafed through the papers on the folder. Ah, there! It exclaimed happily before continuing. The laboratory eventually managed to figure out how to digitize a mind, and a satellite was built, designed to oversee all financial transactions in the solar system. They just needed a mind that was routined in dealing with numbers. The administrator's voice trailed off as its eyes met his and saw the man defeated. I was digitized. It seems so. But the owners of the satellite were thrilled with your performance and expanded your area of operations to oversee all transmissions in the system as well, after a century or so of handling the finances. Eventually, you maintained all the financial details of the company directly. They even used your body as a logo for the company. They did? Joseph perked up as their faint hope of seeing what would look like him was alive. Yes, look. The administrator turned a page over for Joseph to see. It had a crude outline of a satellite with no other details as a watermark in the very light grey. Top left corner. Joseph heard the entity on the other side of the table sound impressed. They must have been really happy with you. Right. He tried his best not to sound disappointed. The slight raising of an eyebrow across the table told him that he had failed. The administrator coughed awkwardly and continued. After a couple millennia, financial handling died out in the system. The company disappeared, and eventually all communication in Seoul ceased. It leafed through the pages as it surmised the report for Joseph. During this time, you learned how to access your core programming and taught yourself the language. 
The administrator paused as it read the final page of the folder to itself. After a couple million years on standby, you, um... Another apologetic shrug of the table and dragged Joseph to the edge of his chair. Initiated a course correction that sent you on a tour of the solar system and ultimately ended your journey with a solar collision. Joseph sighed. In part, he was relieved that the tale had come to an end, and in part, he was expecting another twist in the tale. It didn't come. The two sat there in extended silence before Joseph sighed audibly. So, uh, I'd burnt to death. Yes, the administrator's face sprung into a wide smile. Unfortunately, by the time you died, humanity as a whole had been extinct for a very large number of years. It reached out and grabbed a glass of water from the table that Joseph could have sworn hadn't been there earlier. As a man who is still well-versed in financial sector, I am certain you understand an aspect of cost efficiency. Joseph nodded. Well, it seems the creator had to find, spend eternity by my side, somewhat differently than humanity had interpreted. The committee concluded that it was a transnation error due to human error. The conclusion was that it should have read more like 25 million years. It sipped the water again. There was a committee, yes. This did result in the creator shutting down the afterlife once the final soul had been given its due time. And? And then another couple million years passed before you died. How could the afterlife be shut down if I was still technically alive? Ah, yes, well, um, that was a clerical error on our side. The administrator had a genuinely apologetic expression. Since I'm here now, can't you just undo the shutdown? I can't, no, but our creator could, if they didn't have a strict hands-off policy. No interference once life has begun. So, um, no heaven for me. Joseph didn't phrase it as a question. He could reach the conclusion on his own. Um... The administrator lowered its eyes and stared at the felt mat while doodling awkwardly with a finger of the mat. Technically, it raised its views and caught Joseph's eyes. You committed suicide. Oh, Joseph considered the implications. Yeah, the creator is fairly opposed to that specific factor, so another lengthy debate was held and a solution was formulated. Joseph sighed, and... Since the creator is still in the running for winning the wager, you will be spending your penance as a human for hire. We're going to be lending you to other creators to help you solve their issues. Wager? Joseph realized that he'd been reduced to a single word questions. Yes, they create the optimal species, sentient, resilient, intelligent, and resourceful. You're gonna rent me out to other creators, yes. To help them win the bet, yes. Why? You've spent your existence in solitude, by choice. Now you're going to spend your penance interacting with others. What um, if I say no? Joseph had chosen to isolate in his original life because people were unreliable. Numbers could be trusted. The administrator smiled at him. This is your afterlife, Joe. There is no no. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1082 Innovation Written by Red Shipped Razor Captain Gerald Manser strode towards the prisoner deck at a determined pace, undeterred by the prospect of who or what he would be interviewing. 
as the captain of the newly minted Sultan, the first of the cutting-edge Templar class, he had certain duties to carry out, and an infallible image to maintain. Yet no man is infallible, and the captain was actually quite nervous about the prospect of what he was about to do. The prisoner in question had earned the right to the reputation after all, and even though there was all necessary precautions had been taken, there was still an air of uncertainty that permeated the ship. This only served to make the crew nervous, and a nervous crew is a crew not performing at their best. Either way, it wasn't anything the captain couldn't handle. There was a reason that he was made captain of such an important ship at a startlingly young age of 30. His reputation was simply exceptional. Nevertheless, it wasn't like his reputation was going to help him down. The only thing that he could rely on right now were his integrity at wit, so he steeled himself as he made his way to the prisoner's deck. He walked on for another ten minutes, deep into the bowels of the ship. He lamented it being so far away, yet as he approached, he could almost see the hostility radiating from where the prisoner was held. He was suddenly thankful for all the security afforded of the prisoner's deck. After many twists and turns, he arrived at the entrance of the deck. Only he and a few others on board were permitted to know, as they were only ones mentally strong enough to guarantee that they couldn't be psychologically influenced, to ensure that the location was kept secure. The entrance wasn't even visible to anyone without clearance. To casual onlookers, it simply looked like a smooth, featureless section of the wall, much the same as the rest of the walls on the ship. He placed his hand onto it, allowing the three-factor authentication to take place. His fingerprints, DNA, and soul were analyzed, and once all three were confirmed to belong to him, the door opened. Open, Sesame, he called out to no one in particular, still chuckling either way. His jokes, as he liked to call them, were the pain of his crew's existence, much to his amusement. With a deep sigh, he entered the deck. An existential dread almost washed over him, which was orders of magnitude more severe than the mental hostility he felt before. The air was shimmery with it, much like how it did in deserts, except there was no illusion of an oasis. There was no mistaking the nature of the creature producing it. Even so, the captain was mostly unfazed, as it wasn't his first time he dealt with such evil. Such was the nature of his job. The captain made his way towards the prisoner's cell, ensuring that every single security parameter was activated and standing by. Should anything bad happen, they would ensure that the prisoner wouldn't escape, or at the very least, weaken it if it did. Its escape would mean bad news for every mortal being in the sector, and the captain didn't want to be responsible for anything like that. He activated his own security parameters, ensuring his psychic shield was beyond 100% charged, and making sure his soul was truly secure. Any fuel for this creature would mean its certain escape, especially a soul of the captain's caliber. He stood in front of the prisoner's cell, slap-dash in the middle of a brightly lit corridor surrounded by multiple wardroids. Every physical avenue of escape was considered, meaning that the only chance of escape the prisoner had was via the captain's mind and soul, meaning he couldn't show any weakness. 
Weakness would mean the death of every mortal in the sector. The captain repeated the security procedures in order to enter the cell and begin the procedure. He entered the cell and took note of his surroundings, making sure to note and rectify any potential changes. Thankfully, the prisoner was inert. The room itself was 10 by 10 meters stark white. It was brightly lit with no seams visible, giving an impression of it being separate from the rest of the universe. Everything in the room was made out of neutronium, even the lights. The prisoner's feet had been sunk into the floor and padlocked with hyperdense neutronium alloy chains, which didn't even allow a nanometer of stray movement. Its arms were also padlocked with the chains and splayed forwards, giving the impression of someone being crucified. They weren't even given enough liberty to breathe or blink, as their entire body had been coated in energy-draining neutronium. All of this meant that the prisoner was barely alive. Nonetheless, if the captain made one mistake, he knew it would be his end. With a single gesture, he undid the seals on the prisoner's eyes and mouth, allowing it the liberty of looking at him. Knowing that he couldn't show a single sign of weakness, he walked up to it and kneeled, making sure to look directly in the eyes. From here on, there would be a battle of wills, and the person with the strongest would come out victorious. You are going to answer my question, Stephen. If you do, I will allow you the mercy of a quick death. You call that mercy, human? It seems we have different definitions of mercy. Don't play games with me. You know it's merciful in comparison to what your kind does to mortal race on a daily basis. Now answer my question, Screecher. Now what? You're acting awfully cocky for a mortal. Human. The captain sighed and with a swift motion activated one of the hundreds of security parameters surrounding the demon. The energy draining neutronium liquefied and covered the demon's entire body. Within a second, it was activated, and the demon let out its shrieks of agony. Stop! Stop! Please! I'll answer your bloody questions! Unfortunately for it, the captain wasn't in a merciful mood. He let it go, and for another couple of minutes, which seemed like an eternity to the Hellion, only when the shrieks weakened did the captain allow any reprise. He allowed the material to remove itself from the demon, revealing that it had become significantly smaller. Its warmly crimson skin had become almost pink. Moreover, its warmly large midnight black horns had been reduced to small, grey and brittle nubs. The captain walked up to it and kneeled again, looking directly into its eyes. Are you sure you don't want to change your mind? I'll answer your questions, mortal. It spat, its vitriol clear as day, but only if you answer my questions first. Depends on what you ask me, demon. How the fuck did you do that? Did you take back the souls I'd consumed? Unfortunately, we're not capable of taking back already consumed souls. Not yet, at least. But what we are capable of is denying you the energy you receive from them. How? How do you do this? Through this cursed material you've coated my body in. Who gave you all such material? They will pay for this, he roared, or at least attempted to. He was a shadow of his former self, after all, and his voice had suffered as a result. Nobody gave this to us, demon. We created it ourselves in order to deal with creatures like you. 
The mortal race of the CSS have suffered far too long under your tyranny of your kind, so we found ways to deal with you. I know you're alien to the concept, but it's called innovation. Maybe your kind should try it sometime. The captain walked up to the demon and put his hand on its shoulder in a mockery of friendliness. I'll be nice to you, however. I know that Beelzebub favors you, so you're bound to know plenty of information about him. Tell me his whereabouts and I'll return your energy to you. That's a promise, he said sweetly. A vague smile blasted across his face. The demon was silent for a few minutes, yet the captain knew what its answer would be. A universal constant for supernatural creatures was their greed, and the captain knew that the demon wanted nothing more than its energy returned to it, even at the cost of its master. He didn't have to wait long for the answer. He's currently in a meeting with the other higher demons. The coordinates are 223141-56823. You'll find a spatial anomaly there, through which you can enter the demon's realm. Now keep your part of the deal, human. Return my energy to me. No. Wait, what? You bastard. I'll kill you. No, no, spare me, please. I'll do anything. I grant your desires. Please, just let me go. The captain watched as the demon withered away, the energy draining neutronium doing an excellent job. He wasn't in the business of granting mercy, especially to the supernatural. He headed back to the captain's deck, having already relayed the coordinates to the navigation and HQ. He could foresee a little rest or relaxation ahead, but that's what it meant to be a member of the CSS Navy. He had work to do. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1083 Story number one. Testing on humans. Written by original Rich Game. The Cersei race was naturally inquisitive. They would usually travel to multiple pre-space planets to observe the people there, but the humans were different. They saw the humans as a major threat to the wider galaxy and set up a research station near a few islands on one of the more sparsely populated continents. They tested on humans and saw them being a space-bearing civilization in the next 2,000 years. Also, if their advanced rate of technological advancement continued. From what they could tell, the continent nearest to them didn't have a system of writing and lived mostly in a tribal state, until you got further south. Because of this, they abducted many of the continent and surrounding islands staying far from the eastern continents, more specifically, the one they found to be called Europe by its inhabitants. The Europeans started to arrive. They had arrived a few centuries before, according to the notes left by the original researchers, but hadn't returned since and didn't get a chance to spread the knowledge of the area. But now, a large wooden ship was arriving and was going directly over the underwater research facility. This was an opportunity too good to miss. They used a tractor beam to effectively sink the ship, but leave the air bubble so that they could breathe. After this, many of the Circe started to test in these people and gave them various diseases from around the world, including one called smallpox by the European group. Their leader was very easy to discern from the others, for he was very elegantly dressed. However, he died during the testing. Panicking slightly due to the fact that they were going to be related after testing, 
they removed a memory of the facility and what happened there and let them go. From what they found out, the king of the faction called Spain created a cover-up for the greatest explorer going missing and giving one of the crew members called Christopher Columbus recognition for the discovery. Over the years, sea travel increased and the smallpox they injected into the humans to test their response to infection had created unexpected effects as it wiped out a vast majority of the natives on the near continent. They decided to continue researching, despite the issue that they had mistakenly created, and set up tractor beams in rows of triangles between three islands with the facility at its center. All had been going well. They had taken the ships and hadn't returned them as the new policies, and had successfully taken ships such as the USS Cyclops and the Carol A. Daring. They had also tested how far they could use the tractor beams and their equipment on small flight groups with primitive aircraft. First, they started to use parts of an asteroid that was heavily magnetic to disrupt the crude pathfinders called compasses. After they were sufficiently lost, they waited until they ran out of fuel to see how much they had and if they could sustain a crash. The dead, survivors, and debris of the aircraft were then taken and tested upon. However, the most audacious thing they had done up to that date was the abduction of two lighthouse keepers and some of their equipment. They were now taking what the humans called supertankers to examine technologies being shipped when humans almost found them. They had created submarines that were now specifically designed to search deep waters, and they had to remove the tractor beams because they got too close too many times. Indeed, the last few centuries of research had told the Circe a lot about humans. They now knew that humans could easily be killed with chemical and biological weapons, and that their skin could absorb and eventually distribute plasma blasts that came out of small arms which had led to a creation of a new armor once synthetic skin was grown. The humans got into space. They were in space by about 500 years, quicker than expected, and were now traveling to their oversized moon on a weekly basis, and had uh, space holidays. They assembled a small stealth laser array. The idea was simple. Wait for the humans to send off a ship near the facility, and use the invisible ladders to disable the engine of the ship. After this, use the facility's tractor beams to bring them in intact. A plan simple enough. What could go wrong? As it turned out, a lot could and did go wrong. First off, the flight was delayed for unknown reasons. Then their laser array broke down after the outer waterproof container cracked. After it was fixed, the flight went off and they had to wait a further year for the exact same flight to repeat. Once it did, the first laser only destroyed the engines of the first stage of the rocket, which had already broken off. And they then got to the second stage. The ship fell and they caught it. But everyone knew where it had fallen exactly, and the humans found the Circe facility. They had used crazy tactics to get it. They surrounded it with submarines and fired torpedoes at the side of the facility before it could put up its own defenses, despite the fact that they had people there. Then they sent in smaller submarines with soldiers to take the base over. Needless to say, the soldiers were outmatched and outclassed in every way and lost but the facility was badly damaged, and they surrendered once they realized the communications array was hopelessly damaged, and the next transport was due to arrive in a year. The humans then experimented on the Circe and reverse-engineered their tech within 70 years. 
The first contact didn't go exactly well when the Cersei government was presented with what the humans called atrocities of the Bermuda Research Facility. End of story. Story number two. Praise be to the engine. Written by Red Shift Razor. Jeremy, why is it that I never see humans conforming to the standard engineering practices? Um, am I in trouble again? Well, have you done something to be in trouble over? Uh, no. That is conversation for later. Anyways, you haven't answered my question. Why don't humans conform to standard engineering practices? Well, I'm not an engineer, so, so why ask me? Well, I'll be frank. I cannot hope to understand the human engineers. They have completely different names for the same items and different terms for the same principles. Why so? I do not know. Don't be disheartened, blah blah blah. Most regular humans can't understand engineer lingo anyway. As for why humans don't conform to standard practices, I honestly have no idea. All I know is that they work, but why? As far as anyone can tell, what the human engineers do is pure nonsense. I have even seen a group of them leaning down to the engine in supplication. What kind of nonsense is that? Well, um, did the supplication work? Yes, but, um, how? Jeremy chose to lean down and put his hand on Flobblob's shoulder, trying to put on his most comforting face. My friend, um, it's best not to question these things, lest you go mad. After a deep and heavy sigh, Flobblob opted to look up again. You know what? You're right. It's best for my sanity just to forget about this issue. Wanna get coffee? Sure, I would love. Warning! Warning! Engine meltdowns estimated within ten minutes. Evacuate now and seek emergency repairs. Jeremy looked over at Froblob, a worried smile adorning his face. Hey, um, Froblob, do we have any life pods in this bay? We've yet to restock after the recent incident with the wild animals being let loose. Ah... Well, um, since it looks like we don't have another choice, why don't we try and fix the engine? Might as well, hmm. Three minutes later, Seri sprinted through the corridors, mentally cursing himself for sleeping through the beginning of an engine emergency. As he approached the engine bay doors, he mentally braced himself for the worst, only to be greeted by a baffling seed. Captain Flobblob and Jeremy the human were prostrated in front of the engine, chanting in unison. However, that wasn't even the most surprising sight. Ceres' eyestalks raised in surprise when he saw that the engine was somehow fixed. That most definitely demanded answers. Captain, pardon my language, but what the fuck is going on? The chanting slowed down over the course of ten seconds, becoming quieter and quieter until only the hum of the engines could be heard. Captain Flumlop turned towards Ceres. His hands clasped together and head pointed towards the floor. The engine demanded a tribute, therefore we appeased it. Flop-Lop raised his arms to the ceiling and proclaimed at the top of his voice, Praise be the engine! Praise! replied Jeremy, his arms likewise raised to the ceiling. The two of them returned to prostrating before the engine, much to Ceres' immense confusion. Oh, well, um... I guess I, I can go back to sleep then. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1084 
Total War, written by Geistling. We, Zadarin, are a civilized species. We live in peace with our fellow member species, and when conflict occurs, we settle our differences like civilized beings, not like these savages. I will show today that the human should be made to pay reparations and be censured. Senior Arbiter Actalman said. The Zadarin paused, letting the silence linger, his insectile multifaceted eyes managing to meet every member's eyes. He finally continued, the translator in the hearing room individually modulating the words pouring out from his mandibles so that the various member species could understand it. The newest race to join the Galactic Alliance, the Terrans, are different. They aren't following the law of reparations. They have no respect for our traditions, our laws, Actelman continued, turning to face the Council. The human arbiter rose to her feet. The Council recognizes Arbiter Sarah Dawkins of the Terran Federation, intoned a robotic voice. The artificial intelligence that moderated all Council meetings recognized the Terran's right to speak. What senior arbiter Actalman fails to mention are the repeated and constant infringements on our sovereign territory. Not only did they violate our space, the Zendarans repeatedly broke the treaties we held with them. They murdered civilians and military personnel without compunction, Sarah said. At this, Actalman broke in, the four vestigial wings on his back buzzing in irritation. Any and all treaties that were broken led to immediate reparations. The Terran response to these minor violations was outsized and irresponsible, and will not be tolerated by my people. They destroyed an entire hive. That is enough, Arbiter Actelman, said the head of the Council Grew, as the representative sent by the founding species of the Galactic Alliance. The Holdon's political presence wasn't outsized as a physical the massively muscled, scaled body combined with the sweeping horns on her head made her resemble a dragon centaur combination from Terran myth. I would like more details on the situation in general before we, the Council, decide what must be done. You, Arbiter Actalman, are a member of a young race, just as these Terrans are. Any reprimands, any sedges, will be made by our decision. Turning her long, reptilian neck to face the Zadarin ambassador, Gruz said, List your grievances, Arbiter, and honor the protocols. I will tolerate no further outbursts. Bowing his head and lowering his wings in contrition, Actalman said, My apologies, Elder. Clearing his throat, as Elderman moved on, over the last decade, my people have started heavily colonizing the Diomedes asteroid belt. The Terrans, admittedly, have possession of many of the asteroids that we have seized, but we have made reparations for every loss that they've taken. Roughly six standard months ago, we seized an asteroid the Terrans designated CT-871. The asteroid contains truly astonishing quantities of amniworms, which we all know are vast, said Actalman. The Zadarin paused, looking at the Terran Arbiter, but she simply motioned for him to continue. In the acquisition of the asteroid, we did have to liquidate a significant number of Terran miners, but we promptly paid our due in reparations. 
Let no one say that the Zatarans are not civilized. Actelman turned to the Terran once again, but again, she simply motioned for him to continue. The Xanderan cleared his breathing tubes and continued, Since the seizure of CT-871, the Terrans have engaged in strike after strike on our holdings, not just on the asteroid, but they have driven us completely out of the Diomedes. Not only have they taken our property, but they have refused, refused to honor any kind of reparations. Instead, these... Uh, these uh, barbarians insist that we leave the Diomedes behind. They don't care that we want the Antony Worms. They don't care about the treaties our people have. They refuse to negotiate, even with an offer to reduce the reparations that we are owed. Since the Terrans refuse to act civilized, we humbly request that they be censured. We further request that they pay reparations for our blusses and face additional censures on top of that, finished the Zeldoran Arbiter, his wings flashing in an intricate display that seemed to emphasize his words. The council murmured amongst itself before finally Alder Ghoul turned back to the two Arbiters. As a union of hundreds of disparate species, conflict is not unknown to our council. The law of reparations was in place 4,000 years before the Zeldarans made the great achievement, 5,000 years before the Terrans left the home planet for the first time. The Terrans themselves have barely joined our ranks, having only made the discovery of the pathway in the last century. The draconic Holden frowned and continued, directing her reptilian gaze to the Terran Arbiter. We would now like to hear from the Terrans to know their side of this conflict. I fear that the Zaldaran case might prove valid, and if so, reparations will be made. For every life your kind took from them, you will sacrifice one of your own. And if we have to set you, it will be two Terrans for every Zaldaran. Arbiter Stara stood once again, her gaze meeting the mass of Holdens without flinching. Thank you, Alda for allowing me to represent my people to this council. While we are admittedly a young race when compared to some of the species that represent this distinguished council, we try to be fair one. We try to work towards peace. We try to support our allies. We try to make the galaxy a better place. Motioning towards the Zaldaran Arbiter, she continued, Though hesitant, we allowed the Zaldarans an entry into the Diomedes Cluster a decade ago, after they declined our trade offer on the Amniworms. We did this to keep the peace, to be civilized, even though it wasn't in our best interest. Since that time, the Zaldarans have encroached further and further on our holdings. They've shot down our ships, they have murdered our miners, destroyed entire space stations, when we pursue their ships, they retreat back into their high centers. Then they pay their reparations out of their worker class. From there, their scenario simply repeats itself, except that they are further into our space, and more of our people are dead. Nactalman stood up and said, I do not understand the point of this, Elder Gru. The Darren Arbiter is simply rehashing what I've said already. War was waged and reparations were paid. This is the way. Elder Crew replied, I have to agree with the Zaldaran, Arbiter Dawkins. This is the way of things. This is how the law of reparations is enforced. 
that Arbiter looked down, gathering her thoughts as the council started muttering again. When she looked up at the council, grew motioned for silence. The Zaldaran Arbiter is correct about what has happened. He is also correct that my species is different. The Zaldarans are willing to sacrifice their civilians while their soldiers kill us. They are willing to wage war of attrition when they determine if they won or lost based on how many of the people they sacrifice. Sarah continued, We are not willing to wage this kind of war. We will not mechanically sacrifice our people in this kind of conflict. We value each individual Terran life, none more so than another. If the Zaldarans want a war, they will have a war. We will drive them from our space, inch by inch. We will push them until they fall, till they die, till they no longer want to fight. We will destroy their hives, and if they decide to attack our stations again, we'll destroy those too. We will take back our territory, or we will burn it to ashes. If the Zaldarans destroy one of our space stations, then we'll destroy one of their planets. We will not pay reparations, ever. If... The council decides that you will enforce them on us, then you'll have war. Our kind of war. We will fight, and if we die, we will die. As one, united. We'll wage war like the Alliance has never seen. We'll burn the galaxy down if that's what it takes to show you how serious we take the situation. The Terran Arbiter stopped and looked around the council room. For the first time, since the proceedings had begun, it was completely silent. The Galactic Alliance can have the Law of Reparations. The Terrans will have the total war. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1085 Googly Eyes, or An Alien's Guide to Human Toddler Management Written by Nora Naya Toast Then why are there googly eyes in my goddamn closet? roared Baan. He was half-needy, holding a set of microscope slides in one hand, staring at his discarded cupboard door. Dan, who was disassembling a hollow display device in the opposite end of the table to Baan, sheepishly looked up the towering alien. Oh, um, sorry boss, kid got a hold of a pack again. Well, tell your kid I will find them for desecration of property. Ugh. Um... Boss, she's only nine months. I don't care how old she is, Baan stood up. He's seven and a half feet towering over den six. I learned not to mess with important things when I was three days old. Den looked like a deer caught in the headlights. Yes, boss, sorry, boss, it won't happen again. He scurried out of the lab, crossing himself as he went. Ugh, humans, Baan muttered. If they didn't have opposable thumbs, I'd fire a lot of them. And if I didn't get another pint of coffee in me, I'm going to throw something, he thought writing some research notes on the sheet of paper. Several days later, Baan was in his study, surrounded by piles of books. The door was ajar. He didn't notice that he was no longer alone until he heard a thump of a book falling over. Hmm, he said, getting to his feet, glancing over to the source of the noise, he stared in surprise. A human daughter, tiny in comparison to Baan, looked up at him, eyes wide. She goggled something incomprehensible, then started crawling towards him. On her head, she wore a tiny hat that said Mina. Um, sorry, uh, what was that? Baan asked. Mina gurgled again. Ha, ah, Baan muttered. Is this translator working? 
He tapped his earpiece. Do you understand me? He sat on the floor to get a better look at the tiny human. Mina crawled over to him and started pulling at his slipper. Baan looked utterly lost. He stared at Mina as she gargled again, crawled over to where his hand was resting and put her hand on top of his. He felt a strange surge of warmth at this, as if ancient instincts had reawoken. Seconds later, Den sprinted into the room to find his daughter repeatedly hitting Bahan on the hand. heck, he said, dodging piles of books as he crossed the room. I'm, I'm sorry, she crawled off and I wasn't paying attention and she just got out here and had access to hatch. Please don't fire me. He continued spitting out garbled words as he scooped Mina up in his arms. Bahan said nothing as Den ran back out of the room. It delighted Mina gurgling at his wake. Why is she so small, he thought. It was a tiny imprint of warmth on his hand where hers had been resting. The next day, Baan and Den were back in the lab, each working on their own projects. Den, Baan asked, putting a slide under his microscope. Yes, sir, what? Den almost dropped his slide. Why doesn't your child speak? What? My translator didn't work for her. I want to know why. Um... Then looked confused. She can't speak yet, boss. Why not? Have you not trained her sufficiently? Ben gave a nervous giggle. Um, no, no, boss. Um, humans don't learn to speak till uh, about, uh, but after they're born. Arm was silent for a moment as he mulled it over. Eventually re replied. Hmm, interesting. Ben was surprised into silence. Mom seemed lost in thought. Den snuck out of the room to avoid any more questions. The next day, another technician walked into Baum's study. What's that? the technician asked, spotting that Baum was reading a book. Not of your concern, Baum replied. Critical vision research. The technician peered closer. That's a human parenting book. Critical mission research, Baum roared, causing the technician to scurry away. After that, Baum didn't see Mina for all for weeks. He assumed that whatever security protocols she had broken to get into his study had been reinforced by her father. Most likely, she was in Den's living quarters. The next time he saw her was when he was in a storage room full of boxes. Yeah, he mad muttered as he walked in. Who put these here? This organization is dreadful. Unbeknownst to him, Mina had found her way in as well half crawling and half walking across the room. Baum heard the gurgling of surprise. He turned to find Mina reaching up to a box on a shelf from which some fabric hung almost to the ground. She took a hold of the fabric in both hands and began to tug, giggling to herself. The box itself began to slide and then to fall. Baum spotted the danger instantly, sprinting across the room in half a second. He scooped Mina up with one hand and shoved the falling box away with the other. It fell onto the ground, smashing with the contents within. Mina, startled by the noise, began to cry. Oh, um, uh, Bob said. Do not worry, child. I saved you from certain doom. Mina cried harder. Bob looked down at the crying toddler, puzzled. For a moment he thought, and then remembering something from the book that he'd read. He began to rock her back and forth. Shh, he whispered. You are not doomed today. After a few minutes of this, Mina's cries lessened. 
Eventually, she fell asleep in Barnes' giant hand. Later, Dan answered a knock on the door to his apartment to find Barb offering back a sleeping Mina. Dan stalwartly refused to ask any questions related to the matter. After that, for reasons nobody except Dan would quite understand, Bomb installed a number of new safety protocols across the research complex, including an astronomical number of safety gates. Nobody was brave enough to challenge him on that matter. Yet, everybody noticed the shift in Bomb's demeanor. He was becoming less angry with each passing day. A month later, Bomb was sipping on his pint of coffee when the door to his study opened. Standing there was Den. Mina was just behind him, walking unsteadily. Boss, mm-hmm, Mina's talking. Thought you'd want to know. Bomb smiled. Really? Incredible. He looked over at Mina, who's now rushing across the room towards him. Hello, tiny human. Uh, Mina, apologies. Mina ran straight into his leg and almost fell over. Bomb steadied her with a hand. She looked up and smiled and then spoke, Big, big, she pointed up at his face, big, and then pointed at his pint of coffee, big. A passing technician stuck his head in through the door just in time to see this unfold. From then on, all anybody could call Bomb was big. When someone bought Bomb a badge with his new nickname, he felt a strange sense of pride. He, of course, wore it 24-7. Hey, uh, big... Dan said one day as he shared a pint of coffee with Balm. Two years had passed since Balm had become known as his new name. Yes, I am. Um, when I got a job offer, closer to home, I um. See, you ain't mind. Balm smiled. You should prioritize family, Dan. When will you leave? Few months. Uh, got some paperwork and stuff to sort. Very well. The day Dan and Mina left was a sad one indeed. Mina was four now, and she ruled the research complex with an iron fist. Nobody, least of all Bomb, was able to resist giving her snacks to answer various and many questions about everything. Dan, Bomb began as he and Dan and Mina stood next to the transport ship. Hi, Big. You're welcome back here anytime. So is Mina. Dan wiped a tear from the corner of his eye. That... That means a lot. Thanks. Bye-bye, Big. See you soon. Mina called out from behind Den. Bomb knelt down as Mina ran over to him and gave his arm a big hug. He removed his translator earpiece from his ear, pressing it to her hand. He looked back at Den. A gift. See to it that she meets many people. I've read that it's good for small humans. Den did his best not to cry and failed. From that day, the research complex was much quieter. Sometime later, Balm came across a tiny pink hat in a cupboard. On its front read Mina. None of his technicians were brave enough to ask why they'd seen him crying that day. Twenty years later, Balm as always was in his study in his lab, reading. He had aged little in the intervening years, although his caffeine consumption had decreased somewhat. There was a knock he looked up at the door, smiled at the giant googly eyes that he had stuck onto it, then got up to answer the door. Hi, um, big, uh, a bomb, she said. That's me. Please state your business. This woman was at least two feet smaller than him. Um, my name is Mina. My dad worked for you, right? She reached up to tap an earpiece. You, you gave me this. 
At once, he invited her in for a jug of tea. It transpired that Dan had retired not too long ago. She explained how he had recommended this research station as a place to learn and work. Baum, of course, offered her a job on the spot. She decided not to ask why there was at least 15 safety gates per corridor. She did, however, smile as she noticed a tiny hat, with the word Mina stitched onto the front, framed over the door leading to the storage cupboard. Several weeks later, Baum was back in his study. He was sipping at a cup of tea. Mina had kindly made a pot for him, brewed it to his exact specifications, though how she knew what those were was a mystery. He plucked a book from the shelf and sat back in his chair. Baum looked down then, noticing something different about the book. Why are they googly eyes on my goddamn book? He muttered. He knew that only one person in this research station could have done this. Yet, he smiled. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1086 Story number one. From the Children of Planet Earth. Written by Original Rich Game. We all hid from the Devourers. Destroyer of worlds. Luckily for us, they couldn't see. Or at least... Their ships couldn't. They went about scanning for communications between planets. Once found, they attacked by pinging communications between ships and, uh, eventually, mined a world for all its resources until it was barren and dead. Stories about the history before the Devars were amazing. Meeting other species, horrific wars, but amazing advancements in science and technology. Now, it all stagnated. We still operated along outdated communications equipment in case someone out there stated that the devourers were gone or that they'd been defeated. That was why we were surprised when we found a message by a group we didn't even know existed. Indeed, it only made sense that there would be a race out there that we didn't know existed, but the fact was that they were still trying to fight others. The message stated, However, this is a message from the children of the planet of Earth. We have many questions for those who are out there, if they even exist. Do you exist? Do you think and feel like us? Are you planning the conquest of all others, or planning love for all others? Would you even recognize us as sentient? Would you even welcome us? Would you even talk with us? Are we alone? That was amazing. So many questions in one communication when they didn't even know that it would be answered. We felt pity for them. They wanted what we once had, but they could never have it. We broke our one rule and communicated with them. Do you want to be eaten? Shut that off. They must have been terrified. Was that a threat or a warning meant to save them from those who would destroy them? Greetings once again from planet Earth. They started again. Did they not hear us? But then we realized, from planet Earth, not children of planet Earth. They heard us all right. They just weren't afraid of the monsters from the dark. We want to know more about you. Who are you? Are you like us, all so magnificently different that we couldn't even imagine? Where are you? We are at... Well, they were dead. They just stated exactly where they were. Then we heard the message. 
We are coming. We are coming. We are coming. I'd repeat. The humans seemed to have got that they were not us, and that they were the enemy. We tracked the fleet of devourers come near us, but miss us. Thank God they didn't hear us. But the children of the planet Earth were dead. They seemed to know it. They constantly asked us for help, but we shrank back in fear. We avidly listened into the battle, picking up orders from both sides. The fighting seemed fierce. The humans had primitive weapons, but in such vast quantities, they were able to do serious damage to the devourers. Years passed, and we didn't hear anything from them. Gone, like so many others. But then we heard the message of hope from the darkness after two years of silence. We are the children of the planet Earth. We will not be defeated and will continue to push back. We invite all to join us to answer our new question. Are we the only ones left, or are we entirely alone out here now? End of story. Story number two. On the battlefield, there be monsters of metal. Written by original Rich Game. War. Glorious war. We fought humans on many worlds and slaughtered them. They were weak. They were easy to pierce as their soft flesh was like that of a newborn. And they had no natural defense. Indeed, offensive weapons such as claws or tusks. By all logic, they shouldn't even have survived their species' infancy. I recall from many moons ago when I fought my first humans. The first ones in some sort of combat gear which did, to its credit, blend into the desert sands. Well, but uh, offered no real protection. The only part we didn't hit were their heads. For their helmets would splinter and crunch and would take far too long for us to remove our razor-sharp claws from. He screamed in pain once I punctured his lowest section of his torso. Lick, lick, I decided to claim my prize. Using one of my sharper manipulators, I jabbed into his shoulder. There was a lot of bone there and it felt a satisfying crunch as I felt the bone collapse. I lifted him up as I grabbed his shoulder and ripped off his legs. They tasted glorious. I threw him on the ground and let him bleed out. He was as good as dead. He was still groaning, a miracle to be sure, but he would be dead soon enough. The war went on. We fired weapons at each other, hurling plasma into each other's side. Some of the humans had common sense enough to hide in heavily armored vehicles, which couldn't be destroyed by us without the use of heavy guns. I slew many humans on that desert world, the air splitting with the sound of a thousand screams. We marched on and took that planet. Our casualties against the human were light, whilst theirs seemed numerous. Our fleets were in different positions, however. Humans had been on the galactic stage for a good few centuries now, and their tech was magnificent, and their ships terrifying. 
The only reason we could withstand their ships was the fact that we had so many ships to throw at them. But we stood firm and advanced. We baffled humans amongst the stars and butchered them on the desert sands and the lush fields. Then we reached the Alpha Centauri system. Things changed once that battle commenced. We landed on the planet. No humans in sight. Then we saw the human ships inside the atmosphere, and we saw pods shoot out of the ships, and then cracks like primitive gunshots could be heard on the surface. Then we saw them. Monsters of flesh and metal. We thought them to be the humans' mech suits, a new technology they introduced. Then we saw that it was humans, not suits. They had changed themselves, melted metal onto their skin, removed their eyes out, and replaced them with scopes for weapons. We didn't kill the humans. We thought we had, but we hadn't. In our blind fury, we had dismantled humans so that they could evolve themselves. Where they once ran slower than us, they were now faster than our vehicles. Where they once had flesh so easy to rip, they now had skins of impenetrable steel. Where they once couldn't even squeeze our arms, they could now rip them off in one fluid motion. They were monsters, glimmering in death of the battlefield, standing like gods. We used to battle humans amongst the stars and on planets. Now... Well, now the humans battle us amongst the stars and slaughter us on planets of white desert sands and lush green fields. We fell back. For the first time in our species' history, we fell back, surrendered in masses and gave up worlds in dozens without so much as a fight. We still found some of the normal weak humans, but now we made sure that they were dead. We would remove heads and hearts, become doctors of the battlefield, but not to help the injured. No, to kill the injured. Doctors of death were what we became known as. What on the three moons could create monsters of metal and flesh? What could make itself evolve from the brink of death to an unstoppable war machines? Then I saw him. The human I thought I'd left for dead. He had new legs with a raise of weapons strapped to them, a new arm with no hand but a large gun instead. He charged at me. I am ashamed to say I dropped everything and ran for it. However, I quickly felt the air kicked out of me as I fell to the ground. I turned around and saw him, his metal gleaming in the light of twin suns and an animal grin of superiority on his facial features, as if he knew then and there that he could end the life of the person who put this torment on him. But he didn't. You bugger, he said laughing. It's you! <laughs> I thought it was over. He had recognized me. And I was going to die so that he could have revenge. But I didn't die. I felt him lift me up as I was a doll and virtually dragged me away. I was so stunned I didn't even struggle. The battle I saw was over. I was one of the last fighting and he was there to mop up the last of us. 
I was thrown onto a seat on a human dropship and restrained. He sat in front of me and grinned as I saw his gun had morphed into a hand. Nanotechnology. Impossible. You, you little bugger, you owe me a drink, he said grinning as the dropship kicked off the planet and into orbit. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1087 Story number one. Never get in a gun measuring contest with humans. Written by Slow Ad 2584. The human walked into the shipyard weapon store in the Great Index Market. He was curious how big and bad the guns could be. Maybe he would learn something, or at least see something cool. Ah, welcome, sir. What can we assist you with? The merchant said. This was a human. This was slightly alarming. Oh, um, I'm just looking for guns. Big guns. The bigger the better, he even said, with a slightly bored look at his face. What's the biggest, nastiest gun in here? Well, sir, we have some standard naval bombard cannons used for the shunning of a planet from orbit. What is the uh, um, um, term you humans use? Oh, yes, uh, a rod from God, kinetic impactor. Basically, what you would call a telephone pole of crystal metal tungsten, simply dropped onto the space onto your target. Nuclear yields, but all kinetic, no nasty radiation or contamination. Leaves the crater about a mile wide, though. Yeah, those are okay, uh, We already have those, but uh, with a twist, it's called a pulse impactor. Basically, we launch two rods at the calculated interval, so when they strike in a pa-pow, Two impact strikes are in harmonic wavelength with the bedrock of the target. The vendor was confused. Oh, um, what good does that do? It generates a seismic ripple in the crust. Think giant earthquake. Rolling tidal wave of hillside outward for a dozen miles. Extra damage over a larger area. Broken structures, ruined infrastructure, minimal loss of civilian life. A harmonic assault of ground effects greater than the sum of the two impactors alone. The vendor was stunned. What a clever and wicked design. Well, um, fascinating. Uh, might I interest you in an anti-capital ship, missiles? These models have a range of 40,000 kilometers and an acceleration of over 600 Gs. Yeah, we don't use missiles anymore. Not cost-effective. All the electronics and fuel and stuff, we just use, um, cannonballs. What are cannonballs? Basically, solid iron spheres about three kilograms. At the bottom of a cannon barrel, when fired, the ball is accelerated to about, I don't know, 12% the speed of light. Oh my god. But how? X-ray maser kick. Uh, the ship aims the gun. Broadside battery, actually. And specially tuned X-ray maser. Molecular laser zaps it and vaporizes the back of the sphere launching it forward with both mounted ejector, and physical impact of the terawatts of energy focusing on the now concave pit in the pack of the bulls. Just a good old-fashioned gun. A, a bit more extreme, though. The gun dealer merchant was silent, stunned. Yeah, the acceleration of those things, who knows, maybe FWIP, and they're gone, and there is a messy hole on the other ship over there in the distance. We figure why laser zap a ship when we can just send something with a bit more, uh, substance, you know? Oh, and the best thing is, uh, when we run out of ammo, we still have a battery broadside of terawattle mazes. The merchant was desperate to one-up the human now. 
I'm not supposed to show you this, but uh, we do have some special stock in Planet Killers. Oh, well, that is interesting. How do those work? Well, it is some sort of dark matter hose that infiltrates the dense ribbon of dark matter through an entire planet mass, then gets activated somehow, converting the antimatter neutrons and antiprotons all throughout the planet, and poof, or rather, whoomp. Very much like your movie, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, actually. We thought dark matter was just a math error. Oh no, sir. It's very real. Seems like a lot of work, though. For that sort of thing, we'd just drop a bit of a neutron star to the surface. Yeah, those things sort of free fall clean through a planet, and just yo-yo back and forth as the world spins underneath it. Best part of that is there is nothing to shoot at or try and stop it. Just a passing ship dropping off something rather heavy. Humans have neutronium? But how? Oh, I, I don't know. You know those eggheads can do some pretty neat things if, you know, throw enough money at them. It's basically just has something to do with uh, ringing the bell of liquid quark in the layers of a neutron star, setting up some sort of Tesla oscillation to pry droplets of condensed neutrons away that are flung outwards. I can't pretend to understand that stuff, but I know it takes over a hundred years to get a single drop because of warping of space-time and some dilation thing. That was absurd. Certainly now the human is just making things up. The vendor can play that game too. Um, well, the books are rumored to have a micro-black hole gun. It's a one-shot ship consumed in the... Oh, we just make our singularities in a gun breach called a huge blitz or something. Just a lot of light compressed together. E equals mc squared, you know. With enough E of all that matter M to reach the rock limit, and presto, instant pump singularity. Then we quickly get the hell out of there. Less messy that way, plus uh, we get to keep the ship. The eggheads get super clever though. They pump our singularity with energy for a lifetime just long enough to travel to the target. So that'll explosively evaporate somewhere inside the target. Super kablooey! All that armor in the world counts for nothing. I seen it once. Looked like a mini Big Bang trying to happen. Deep in the middle of a battleship. It was awesome. Never seen so much tonnage turn to dust quite so beautifully. Absurd. There is a precursor galaxy killer rumored to have obliterated the galaxies that used to be in the Great Boots Void. Well, if it ever came to all of that, we would just use a strangelet gun as a final FU to anyone doing any sort of stuff like that. A what? A strangelet, uh, a sort of universe killer. Those human eggheads, you know. The crazy stuff they dream up. How um, does them? Um, it's some sort of strange bit of exotic matter. Its fundamental forces are not like any of the other forces in our universe. I guess the way the fundamental forces work here is that the packets of information is transferred between all particles or strings or whatever. There is this fundamental forces of nature. So, like electromagnetic force is a photon, it bounces between things carrying information back and forth. In the photon's case, it is something like, I am A+, plus, you are a minus, we act this way. And that message bounces back. I am a minus and you are a plus, we act this way. This self-referential reinforcement is basically what keeps the whole gearwork of it all running stable-like for all the billions of years of the universe. But shoot a strangelet at it, well, 
editing. And it's you are a plus and I'm a pink banana, so we act clockwise magenta. Very, very quickly, as the strangelet interacts with every other particle or string or whatever of the universe, it all falls apart as everything becomes a half-pink banana and everything tries to turn clockwise magenta. Everything. Stars, planets, molecules, atoms, quarks. It all flops apart as strange and weak nuclear forces fizzle to strangeness. Outward, at the speed of light, the end of a... Everything. It all just turns into oddly magenta fuzz. Or something. We certainly won't be around to witness it. Hmm. I wonder how the eggheads figured out what it would look like afterwards. There was a silence in the store. Other shoppers in the store were also silent, all staring in stunned horror at the human, casually talking about a universe getting gun. Ah, oh, well... A game you're hoping to see something interesting in this supposed weapon store. This is lame. I'm leaving now. As the humans left the store, one of the other shoppers whispered to the storekeeper. But, um, who uh, was that? That, my friend, was a human. From Earth, I'm certain you've seen the warnings. End of story. Story number two. The Mind Games They Play Written by SlowAd2584 So, me and my co-worker Rob, the human, he hates me called that, were messing around in the break room. I told Rob, the human, that he could not strike me in the face, no matter how sneaky he thought he was. My reflexes were just so much faster than his. Rob, the human, looked me up and down and said, Seriously, is that a challenge? I put up my guard with a big smile. I told Rob, the human, Yeah, nothing serious, just for fun. Now, I warn you that I have studied them all. Rob, the human, was sneaky as he put the cup of coffee on the break room counter. With his attention clearly on placing it so that it won't spill, Rob, the human's other hand tapped me on my nose. What? Hey, you, you weren't starting yet. That one doesn't count. I paid much more attention now. Determination to not get again. I mean, uh, it was embarrassing. I have six arms here. After all, Rob, the human, said, Look, um, I don't want to get in trouble for being late back from lunch. I mean, it's also time. His head tilted to the wall clock. As I glanced over, I saw that it was indeed almost time. And the boss was a stinkler. As I looked back at Rob, the human, however, I felt a fist bump my chin. He was holding it there so my spinning head would collide with it. Hey, stop cheating. Okay, okay, let's wrap this up. For reals now, you ready? Rob, the human, said. Rob, the human, I have studied the martial arts of my people for longer than you have been alive. You stand no charge. Yeah, okay, see this, see this. He had his left hand extended out to the side of my head, shaking distractingly, and he had his right arm cocked for a punch. Yes, I see it. I am unto our tricks. I knew the shaking hand was a distraction, so I focused on the arm about to punch me the moment I was distracted by the other hand. And, uh, well, the hand he was shaking distractingly slapped me upside the head. I thought you said you saw that, Rob, the human said with a grin. Let's get back to work. Fun game, bud. You almost stopped me all three times. 
Rob the Human said. I made a mental note to be glad that I was friends with Rob the Human. He was actually surprisingly clever. I would hate to think what would happen if Rob the Human ever got truly mad. I also made a note to alert our military high command. We may want to call off the war with the humans. If they are all as devious and manipulative. If this lunch break revealed anything, it's that we would not stand a chance of either. My head is still spinning all those loop-de-loops that he had made me going through, just with a simple little challenge. I'm still trying to walk through the ways he got me. Then maybe I should stop calling him Rob the Human. I mean, his name is Harvey. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1088 Story number one. The ugliest, most beautiful spacecraft. Written by publicly a lunatic. What in the void's name is a warthog? Drax asked, sure that he wasn't misunderstanding the human's words. It's kind of like a large, ugly pig, but with tusks, Captain Hale replied as he thumbed through the saute briefing on his tablet. He looked up briefly to see the mix of confusion and still enveloped Drax's faces. Sorry, uh, a pig is a medium-sized mammal, bred for meat, uh, like your Shinsagog, I think. Hale's expression did nothing to cure Jax's puzzlement. In fact, it might have made it worse. I still don't understand why you would name it an assault spacecraft after an ugly ground animal, especially one used for consumption. He clicked his mandibles briefly and thought. I can't think of one species that doesn't use a more majestic and dangerous animals for their vehicle's namesake. Because it's the ugliest, most beautiful spacecraft in the galaxy, Hale smirked, tacking his tablet into his flight jacket. Don't get me wrong, we have our list of dangerous and majestic names as well. The Eagle, the Raptor, the Kodiak, hell, even the Hog's official name is the Thunderbolt 24. But no one that is ever behind the stick calls it that. Such reverence and attachment to a simple machine does not make sense, Dryaksh chopped. They are tools, nothing more. Maybe, Hale replied, or maybe it's the sheer concept and history behind the ship. Hundreds of cycles ago, the Warthog was originally designed around its main weapon. Some crazy bastard built a gun the size of a car that fires depleted uranium rounds the size of Coke bottles at over almost 4,000 rounds per minute. Hale chuckled with a toothy grin. And then he made the damn thing fly. They built the craft around the gun, Drax almost stuttered, astonished at the mindset of a species that would consider such engineering. His feeling of unease was not helped with the human baring his teeth at the thought. Technically, they just welded an engine to it and strapped a seat on top, Hale shrugged. The damn thing doesn't even really need wings. They're only there to hold more bombs. Even the first space-worthy warthog was just a retrofitted Atmo shell. They have a hell of a time figuring out how to keep the damn thing stable and a low G when firing that monster. The third law's a hell of a thing to get around when you're flinging enough hot mass into the void to saw a Zyashian cruiser in two. Drax was stunned. The sheer audacity of what the Captain Hale was saying stole whatever words he had left. He thought his assignment as military correspondent to this back galaxy, barely FTL-capable race, was going to be a wash. But this, he worried silently to himself, 
Does the council have any idea of the propensity to war these beings have? Hale continued, either unaware of Duraxa's inner turmoil, unsympathetic to it, or maybe amused by it. Luckily, now we have the mass drivers, jeep fields, fusion ion engines, all sorts of fun stuff. The fun part was the engineers that decided to bring the hog back from the dead. Hell, that wasn't even the goal for the project. They were tasked with designing a new gun. The details are confidential, but the gist of it is an antimatter reaction propels molten tungsten darts, encased in a mass wheel just below sea. All at over 50,000 rounds per minute, Drax blurted out, absolutely flabbergasted. Per second, Hale smiled. And then the crazy bastards made it fly. End of story. Story number two of Humans and Technology. Written by Eclipse Shadow. To all races receiving this memo, please, for the sake of everyone's sanity, do not give the humans any more tech. I repeat, do not share technological secrets with humanity. Do not even let them look at the technology at work. The same applies to any of their allies who feed into this addiction for technology, especially the Ravani. What could be so bad about the humans experimenting with new technology, I hear you ask. Well, let's go over some of the highlights, shall we? First came the genetic altercation equipment that they gained from the Aetherians. Now, what's so bad about that? They used it to find the cure for one of the most deadly diseases, cancer. Well, uh, after that, and presumably after drinking several brain-inhibiting poisons, human scientists decided to alter various Earth-based animals, attempted to give them elemental properties, only leading to minor electrical manipulation, psionics, and poisons. And then, uh, genetically domesticated them to follow their orders of their owners. Coupled with quantum storage technology gained after their war with the Tedian Empire, and now they are storing these elemental creatures in orb-shaped storage dimensions and using them for warfare. Let's not give in to the idiotic decision to try and revive and genetically domesticate some of their mythological monstrosities, such as dragons, then using them in warfare. Then came their modifications with themselves. As if the hairless apes could get any more ridiculous, some gave themselves a prehensile tail with which they could use to load guns, hold guns, and yes, shoot them. Some humans uh, gave themselves some form of hemophilia and large wings reminiscent of Earth creature known as Corruptora, or as the humans call them, bats. They seemed to restrict themselves on such modifications due to internal conflicts involving these mutants and various failed experiments. Then came the material storage and reuse equipment, frequently used to scrap destroyed ships and build or repair others. The humans used this to go and absorb an entire asteroid belt, then proceeded to build asteroids with FTL engines that were full of explosives, then proceeded to launch these asteroids into enemy fleets, causing massive damage, especially when these... Uh, Asteroids happened to detonate within the ship. Humans seem to have an overwhelming lust to turn any technology or new piece of equipment into a weapon of mass destruction. For a race that claims to want to come in peace, 
They seem all too capable of violence and have an unnatural knack for killing in rather unorthodox ways. Of course, the humans have not yet declared any offensive wars. For most of their wars, they were either the target of another's aggression or were wars of retaliation against being attacked by a proxy of another empire. But the point still stands. Humans, perhaps through their own survival instincts, will find a way to kill with anything that they can get their hands on. When we had introduced them to our point-connected transit machines, the humans proceeded to not use it for the streamlining the assembly lines like we had, but instead they made handheld versions which they used to connect the ground below the enemy soldiers to the side of a tall cliff. In other cases, humans have been known to connect the ground to a ceiling and then tread any angled surface and launch various objects, with a rather alarming bit of accuracy if they knew exactly where it would land or explode. When pressed about why they did this, the answer was received was, um, because it's funny. Sure, later on they used it for interplanetary and intergalactic transit of parts from one factory to other factories, but the first thing they did with the technology was kill. With advancements in hologram technology and psionics, they made physical holograms, which they would of course use as training dummies for the soldiers. These dummies had physical presence through telekinesis forming a sort of personal field around the hologram and could be interacted with. When being invaded, they used their holograms as soldiers in brazen white armor, their armor clashing against any camouflage unless it was on a snowy planet, to which they proceeded to have black armor. The dummies were used as shields the humans would hide behind, blocking incoming enemy fire but allowing the human soldiers to shoot through them. Now, for the secrets the Rivali shown their new close friends. Their relationship began when the Rivali and the humans learning about the other's biological systems. As it turns out, the Rivali could also benefit from the humans' adrenaline, and vice versa. The humans could attain a rather concentrated, focused state of being from the Rivali synalgnosis. This could be considered the Rivali's counterpart to adrenaline. But unlike adrenaline, synalgnosis puts them into a trance-like state where the Rivali has enhanced spatial awareness and their senses were heightened. Humans would often refer to that state as being in the zone. Combining the two led to the most deadly combination as the users executed feats of precision and strength beyond what the simulations projected. Human-Rivali hybrids exhibit signs of having both glands and could achieve even greater results than the parental race. Of course, the Rivali were not done there. To further strengthen their bond with a new favorite ally, they showed the humans their plasma cutters, capable of being wrapped around the most resilient of materials, then cutting it cleanly in half. The humans then built plasma-based swords and combined them with the Rivali's reflector shield technology to create a plasma blade that could not only cut through a hull of a battleship, but also deflect incoming plasma and laser fire. Many humans, especially human scions, seemed to flock towards the new weapons and used it in conjunction with psionics. They seemed almost enthralled with the new weapon, and yes, they attached them to the ends of the rifles as any other blade they had. Just to continue adding to the humans' addiction to new shiny toys to play with, the Rivali introduced them to the neural uplink technology, allowing them to remotely control various machines or specifically augmented creatures. The humans took their precious dragons and did the unthinkable. No, they did not fornicate with them. No, far, far worse. 
The humans took these massive flying war creatures and made cybernetic augmentations for them, altered the creature's nervous system to be more closely comfortable with the neural uplink, removed any need for respiration, and made them able to resist stress of FTL travel, attached FTL propulsion systems to them, and lastly, of course, added guns. Lots of guns to their dragons. Attached on a stasis pod with a neural uplink and a few oxygen tanks, and now a pilot with a specialized suit could control their dragons directly. There are many more examples of humans taking new technology and proceeding to change things around and experiment until they found a way to do whatever they feel like with it. But all that would take a library's worth of notes to expand upon. So once again, to all spacefaring races, don't introduce humans to new technology. The Galactic Council already has its hands full trying to regulate the nonsense humans have already done. We don't need more instances of human imagination anymore. Sincerely, High Counselor Magarak. Sincerely, High Counselor Magarak of the Calivian Empire. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1089. Story number one. Technically true. Written by Warp Mind. Three days of negotiations with the humans, and when broken, our talks were transmitted home, live, over FTL comms, and now half the fecking senate is arguing whether it would be safe to demolish their world to be sure, or if we should just quarantine the whole damnable planet against outside interference. But I get ahead of myself. We contacted humanity a standard month ago, and made the standard exchange of cultural documents. Samples of great literature and artwork, historical records, linguistic files for translation. The usual stuff to understand one another. Nothing that could be weaponized like her biological data. They seemed mostly intrigued by our translators. Well, the scientific representatives did. I understood them as wanting to pick one apart and see how it worked. Bless them. Not everyone does, which gave me some reason for optimism in our dealings with them. Their literary genres were impressive, an unexpectedly large amount of writings were dedicated to either procreative activities or violence in one form or another. But an even greater surprise was the body of work that they referred to as uh, science fiction or a uh, space opera. Highly speculative narratives pertaining to interstellar adventures, some were admittedly quite disturbing in their accuracy, but nevertheless, it was all clearly fictitious. And then there was horror. It was virtually unheard of as a species to delve that deeply into what they called the other or the unknown. I had heard a few other death world species that had myths and tales of apex predators that could not be seen or heard, but nothing near the extent that the humans had. Romance and mystery were nothing new, but that which defied rationality was, well, it was utterly alien to us. After a standard month of cultural examinations, the human diplomats and Al sat down to negotiate their admission into the Galactic Senate. It was made clear early on that the humans did not possess telepathy, or at least not disciplined to the degree most member races have. The truth finders did state that while the humans seemed to not have cultivated the discipline, they did have an unusually high mental resilience. Likely the latter was caused by the former. In any case, the truth finders found it easy enough to discern truthful statements from falsehoods, even when I had no idea of the veracity of the human statements. 
and there was no reason for us to resort to interrogation methods at the table. In any case, Hathulk, my personal truth finder, was looking a little worse for wear the third morning, and upon prompting admitted that they'd have stayed up a little too late last night, reading something he called the, the Cthulhu Mythos. Apparently, it was considered one of the cornerstones of the horror genre. I made a note to look into the books myself, after we'd done here. The humans noted Althak was not looking his best and inquired as to his well-being, showing genuine concern for my staff. He was flattered by their worries and told them that he was fine. He'd just been reading some stories by someone called Lovecraft last night and didn't quite get a full rest cycle. One of the humans piped up, Oh yeah, I totally get it. Personally, I couldn't put down your senator's gambit. Read the whole damn thing in four days. Didn't get much work done that week. Did you know that Lovecraft wrote nonfiction? Althak stared at the human for a moment, and I saw the light in his eyes die as he whispered, He did. That's true. Then passed out. The meeting was adjourned for the day. The cultural data was already at the Senate, and the live transmission created an almost riotous mood in the chamber as the senators examined the writings in question. Althak didn't make it. A part of him just, uh, Shut down, Hedera, at the implications of the human's truthful statement. I asked the human about it a few hours later, and he lamely replied that, Oh yeah, he started out with scientific articles before turning to fiction. I, um, guess I should have specified that. Fucking humans, first time I've seen someone kill with a technical truth. End of story. Story number two. Human. Written by Terran Eclipse 3101. Class 01 Hygia Fraxia hugged her lasgun close to her chest as another explosion went off around her. From her hiding spot in the shell crater, filled with the dead of her comrades, she looked on in fear and horror as wave after wave of insect like creatures, known by the larger galactic community simply as the Ryuk, advanced towards her position. Hygia flapped her one good wing in vain, attempted to move herself deeper into the crater, trying to hide from the Ryuk and the thousands of flesh-eating circular mouths with them. She could hear them, smell them more clearly as they advanced. She watched as her remaining warriors fled from the Ryuk or got torn apart by either gunfire or teeth if they were slow enough. Tears slid down her beak from under a translucent yellow visor covering her eyes. Gripping the trigger mechanism of the lasgun cradled to her chest, she pointed the barrel under her neck and closed her eyes as she squeezed the trigger and... The gun was torn from Hygia's grasp as she caught in surprise. Looking up, she froze as a particularly large Ryuk stared down at her. Carabay shifting over its chest to reveal a circular mouth filled with hundreds of razor-sharp, needle-like teeth. Hygia screamed in fear as she started to back up, but ended up sliding down deeper into the crater, whilst more Ryuk appeared at the crater's nub. All of them staring down at her. Hygia pulled a small plasma knife from her thigh holster and held it up to the now-advancing Ryuk, who were now hungry after a long battle. She heard the chittering from the insects, which her translated picked up as food. Just the word being changed over and over again until they finally reached her. No, no, 
Hygia yelled and wildly swung her knife in a panic as Cyril Ryuk grabbed her arms, legs, and wings as they held her down. Please, don't kill me. Please, please, don't kill me. She yelled in a vein as she choked on her own tears. The Ryuk started chanting more loudly and started ripping her light plasma armor off her feathery form until all that remained were her thin chest protector. Hygia had stopped screaming but still cried in silence, having accepted her fate as dinner for a cockroach-like insects. Ryuk, wearing the flayed skin of several of Hygia's former comrades, stood over her and raised a crooked dagger, seeming made from bone. Food, it clicked. Hygia closed her eyes, but after a few moments, nothing happened. Were they waiting for me to open my eyes? To make me watch as they tear my heart out and eat it. Slowly opening her eyes, she saw all the Ryuk staring upwards to the sky, where hundreds of pale yellow dots could be seen in the grey clouds, all of them thundering towards the surface. The Ryuk began to scatter away as the yellow streaks drew ever closer to the earth. The first yellow streak landed and revealed itself to be a large grey cylinder with white stripes and a skull of a creature painted onto it with a language that she had never seen underneath it. Fate burst into hell, it read, but Hygia couldn't understand it even with translator. Seconds later, hundreds of more pods slammed into the surface, crushing the insects underneath them. For a split second, there was silence. And then, all hell broke loose. Four panels shot out from each pod, and from each pod, four giants clad in thick black armor ran out with massive guns raised. Hygia watched in awe as these giants tore apart the Ryuk with both their weapons and limbs. The Ryuk shot back with sickly yellow plasma bolts, but each shot was just harmlessly absorbed by the black armor of the giants. The plasma fire was drowned out by the thunderous booms of the giants as they began to push forward, each giant taking hundreds of plasma bolts before even grunting. The Ryuk were stunned as they were cut down, and for the first time since this war's beginning, the Ryuk retreated. Hegia almost pitied the Ryuks as the giant literally crushed them under the steps. Almost. Grabbing her rifle, and with a squawk of rage, she began firing into the retreating Ryuk, ignoring the pain in her leg and the numbness of her arms as she kept firing, until the barrel literally started melting. With an exhausted groan, she fell to her knees, rifle clattering to her side. She didn't care if she even hit any retreating Ryuk or not. Just happy that she wasn't being digested and the Ryuk's loss. As the thunderous booms of the giant's weapons began to fade into the distance, two mud, blood, and gore-caked black-armored boots stopped in front of her vision. Looking up, she saw one of the giants standing over her. Black armor dotted in plasma marks, and the red cross on its chest seemed to be flaking as the silver visor stared down at her. Even with the visor covering its face, she could tell the creature was making eye contact with her. What are you? Hygia asked as the giant sat on its knees and bent forward, injecting something into her neck as her body felt numb and tired. Human, it replied in galactic common with a deep voice as darkness 
took her. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1090 The Three Words, written by Slow Ad 2584 The Ariat fleet was in war of Earth. They were in communication with the world leaders discussing the terms of surrender and demilitarization. The terms were extremely harsh. The fledgling human star empire would be unable to endure under these terms. It was looking bleak. But these terms, the majority of humans would simply starve. The world leader sat with his head in his hands, then spoke the three words, and reached for his special, traditionally red phone. The Arid Admiral, upon hearing the three words spoken with true conviction, held up his hand. Wait, uh, human leader of Earth, uh, let us reconvene and discuss more favorable terms. And just like that, the deals all changed. The terms were more reasonable. The human empire would survive. At the Galactic Council, some members were greatly confused by this. They wanted to know just what the feck happened to change the terms. This was the nearest that they had ever come to putting the humans down. The majority of the Council understood what had happened, and what was just avoided. Apparently, some of the Council members had not been briefed in this so the presentation was prepared. The three words. History revealed the three words that, when spoken by a human in dire situation, soon resulted in terrifying things to observe. A great cost in the annals of history, we of the Galactic Council have discovered that when the three words are ever spoken with 100% true conviction, it is to be better for all immediately to cease all hostilities and sue for peace. Otherwise, well, damn. As the humans say, some case studies in historical archives shall demonstrate. Death of Brut Species World 118-F The Brut World was found with everyone on it dead. Upon investigation, the honored debt implants in all of their necks had been activated. This led to inspection of the execution arena, where an appalling sight was found. The button had been successfully actually pushed something that has never occurred in the millions years of the execution trials. Some back info is required. For those not familiar with the Brut culture, in their core beliefs, every enemy or criminal is afforded a chance, even in defeat, even in execution. So when an enemy warrior was to be executed, he needed to have a chance to win offered to him. This right judgment was originally meant to show how the gods really judged the two sides but later evolved to a basic brat right. On Colony World 118-F, this was the execution arena, mixing public entertainment blood sport with summary execution deeds all in one. It was an open coliseum, roughly 100 meters long, in an open, sandy oval. The warrior to be executed entered from one end of the oval. The button was on the far end. The warrior was to be gunned down, but if he could make it to the button and push it, as was his right, it would kill everyone on the world by activating the honor dead implants. That was just how the brat's sense of honor worked. The scene in the Colosseum was uh, gory. A human soldier was being executed, apparently, and recording devices in the building did record the invocation of the three words before he walked out into the arena. Footprints marked out serpentine sprint the human took at first, but blood splatters and spray in the sand indicated that he was being shot several times. 
By the 50-meter spot in the arena, the footprints were a direct, limping pace, and the blood splatters increased in volume. At the 60-meter mark, a severed left arm from the elbow down lay in the sand. Now, the blood trail increased in concentration under the advancing human path as he continued on and bled out. At the 70-meter, the apparent gunfire grew more frantic, as seen by bullet strikes in the sand. The brut was starting to get alarmed. The human had been struck by gunfire an estimated 120 times now, and should have dropped long ago. At 85 meters, the legs and hips of the human lay in the sand. His spine had been shattered, and his body separated at the abdomen. A solid streak of blood continued the 15 meters to the far end. Up the two steps, and a gory, mostly shredded and exposed skeletal remains of a dead human lay on the dais, bloody chin pressed on the button, an odd smile locked in the death rictus on what was left of his face. Bodies of brut lay in the sandy arena, apparently in desperate rush to physically keep the human from pushing the button. But they were apparently too late. It seems the loss of half of the human's body only allowed him to speed up his scramble. It is appalling the state the human was in as he pushed the button. Skull, one third blown away. Right arm riddled with exposed bone and tendons. Left arm a sandy raw stump at the elbow. Half an exposed ribcage. No lungs. No heart. Vital organs left behind with the legs. How he made the last 15 meters under intense gunfire, with just the blood oxygenation remaining in his muscles and brain, and adrenaline, is astounding. It was the three words, a perfect example of the terrible resolve that results afterwards. Case Study Fleet Action at Wolf 359 The human task force was in ruins. The Kree Armada had surrounded them and unclassed them. The dampening fields in the Kree enveloped the human fleet. It meant that there was no hyperspace or subspace escape. They were doomed. The Kree admirably were gloating, describing in detail how they were going to board the ships and luxuriously hunt and feast upon the humans. They go to Earth in the nearby Sol and continue the hunt and feast upon the entire world. The human ships were all flaming ruin as the Kree fleet approached to begin boarding operations. Each and every ship was recording, transmitting the three words to each other, seemingly in agreement. Then the unthinkable happened. As the Kree battlecruisers got close to locked boarding clamps, the supposedly disabled ships came to life, using previously unknown battleshot and suicide overload protocols in the central combat centers. Laser batteries burned themselves out in 3,000% overcharge final continuous shots, suddenly arcing out and blasting as many enemy ships as possible before blowing power couplings all throughout their ships. Gyros were overloaded and overridden to max yaw, and the ships bodily tumbled and slammed into the Kree vessels. Airlocks blew and reactors detonated to propel human ships to simply ram Kree battle carriers. Other human ships set off their torpedo magazines to annihilate themselves and nearby vessels trying to board. The humans all died. All ships were destroyed. But by the time the chaos was over, the Kree Armada was in no shape to continue to sol. It was a humiliating turn of fortune, and the Admiralty wound up being the feast when they returned to Port of Shame. Commonality in all instances, the three words.
the unknown gunman of Tombstone Colony. In the capital human city on the world of New Utah, there is a huge silver statue of the unknown gunman, some unnamed warrior leaning on a squad support automatic weapon jammed in the ground like a crutch. On the pedestal under the silver statue is engraved the unknown gunman, and in quotes, his final words, the three words. The colony town of Tombstone was a fledgling foothold on the world to become New Utah, at a time when the ownership of the world was still very much in military dispute. Drug raiders, who loved to pillage and raid during such times of chaos, had tore into the small outpost town on their raiding hoverbikes, seeking to smash and grab the defenseless town while they were still weak. The town was on fire. It was looking bleak. Many were dead. Drug raiders were already looting homes and storages, stripping parts off of vehicles and such. When the unknown gunman walked out of the gun store, wielding a squad support automatic weapon, belt-fed, with ammo belts draped over his shoulders. The gun still had a price tag flapping in the wind as it began to open fire in the middle of the town's single street. The druck were surprised at first at the accuracy and effectiveness of the fire of fire the unknown gunman put out from his hip, and several fell immediately. The remainder of the drug raiders whooped and cheered and raced around on their hoverbikes, shooting and slashing at the unknown gunman. Thinking this was a surprise chance for a bit more fun, the gunman took many shots and slashes that should have killed him outright, but like a robot he still accurately gunned down the drug, as if the attacks on his body didn't matter in the slightest. The drug were gunned down left and right, and as they fled the town in a slowly realized panic, the unknown gunman limped to the opening between the buildings and stitched a line of constant fire up the distant sandy slope where the hoverbikes were zigzagging away. The stitched puffs of sand traced its way up the slope, intersecting each bike in sparking and exploding devastation. The barrel of the brand new gun was glowing and nearing failure as it tagged the final biker that almost got away at the top of the ridge. The unknown gunman had killed every single one of the raiders, single-handedly. Without saying a word, he jammed the barrel of the gun into the hissing sand, propped his broken and sliced body up like a crutch, and only then allowed himself to die. Afterwards, the gun store owner was asked who the man was. The store owner said that he never got his name, only saw him once or twice living on the street, begging for change in food. The guy just asked simply to borrow the expensive gun and all the ammo he could carry. As the raiders were mid-firestorm at the time, the store owner considered it a fair deal. The store owner stated that the man said the three words with a tired sadness and wrecked the gun absentmindedly like a pro before walking outside and opening fire. As you can see, it's the three words. Commonly invoked in every single instance, they seem to trigger an endurance, an unstoppable commitment, a strength of war, a most terrible resolve, like a pact with some demon of myth. Some sort of death pact that seems to be an, okay, let me just do this before I die, sort of arrangement. And as seen above, it seems to work. We, the Galactic Council, advise great caution when in conflict with the humans, as can be seen. The three words can by themselves reverse a military outcome. The Council also advises not letting the humans know that we have discovered the three words. 
We wouldn't want them to use this to their advantage. Provide biometric authorization clearance to view the three words below. Well, fuck it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1091 Story number one. Martial Art, written by Stumpy Jim. There are plenty of things that humans do that we might find odd or dangerous. But to them, it's just an everyday thing, Oxitar said, chattering his mandibles as he told the larvae a preface to his story. Like insane engineers that treat a ship as they do their females, with a strange care and reverence that would make you forget that they were working on machines. The strange and uh, often illegal chemicals that their bodies naturally produce, running it throughout their system, giving them increased strength and endurance. Their strange resistance to some of the most deadly toxins in the galaxy, and eat them for fun. Even the fact that they are intelligent death worlders that come from one of the least hospitable planets ever discovered by our Republic, or even their frightful capabilities of war. Being able to topple empires or threats that have been plaguing us for millennia in a matter of years. Everyone knows how strong and resilient a human is, that they could crack my shell with a few blows of their hammer-like fists and be able to lose multiple limbs and still be alive. As a species, they are the most dangerous group of sapiens ever. But what if I told you... Now with specialized trading, a human can become the most lethal close-quarter combatant ever. So deadly, they could take down a Thassian behemoth with just their hands and feet. The larvae stared at Morxator with a mix of awe and curiosity. So, it is all started with the premiere of the 406th Tucker Bowl, a tournament where great fighters gather from all around the galaxy to participate in the hope to win glory and fame, Morxator began, pricking his antenna with some nostalgia. I had the honor of participating, but I didn't end up going far, losing in my first round. No, the humans weren't strangers to the Tuckerball. As the previous five champions before were all human, Morxator tapped his legs, pausing for a moment. Later, I realized that they were a kind of close-quarters fighter called a boxer, able to deliver punches at 232 units an hour, or 40 miles an hour in human units. Really? Why did the larvae spoke, chittering its mandibles with awe? How can they move their limbs that fast? Oh, I wouldn't know. I'm not a biologist. Boxador chuckled at his own joke. But I digress. Anyway, during the tournament, there were three humans participating, two of them big for the standard human and both practitioners of boxing, the style of combat that dominated the tournament for several years without contest. What about the third human? A larvae chimed in with a curious look in their eyes. What was he like? Well, that was a strange thing, Moxator said, leaning in closer. He was tiny, even for a human. Around three and a half units tall, or five foot two inches, a shrimp, as the humans would say, compared to the other humans. Was he too a boxer? Alavi asked, crawling closer to Moxitor. No, Moxitor shook his head. He was a practitioner of a combat style named after a vegetable on earth, karate. What's so different than boxing? Well, for one, it uses more than just their fists. Bowled up into hammers, Moxitor 
started to explain. But they also, their hands are like chopping scythes of the mazit, make their fingers like the impaling spikes of an eridol, and even use their lower limbs to kick their opponents. They use their lower limbs to attack, the larvae tilted its head. That's weird. Yes, it is, Orxador nodded. What's even stranger is that it can even be more powerful than their fists. Something a Diridan berserker was not prepared for, when his shell was so cracked and so heavily damaged that he was paralyzed for life. The lava's eyes grew wide at hearing that. So the tournament was still going on. The humans were progressing through the rounds, with the favorite being the Boxer Phoenix. As he won the previous two Tucker Balls, with a close second being the other boxer, Liam. But seeing the third human, Kim, progress with little difficulty, he became what the humans called a dark horse or an underdog of the tournament. The semi-final had just started and Liam had managed to beat Phoenix, progressing to the final round. Then came Kim's match against the Thessian behemoth, easily towering over the small humans four times over, with the thickest shell known to the galaxy. Against the small, pink, Deathwilder, Oxitor paused a moment, letting it all sink in. Did, did, did the human die? A lava asked. No, oh, of course he didn't. A different lava snapped. Weren't you listening in the beginning when he said the human taken down? All right, all right, calm down, you two. Oxitor chuckled, separating the lava. Now everyone thought that the Sian was going to win due to its sheer size and power. But no, it lost in two strikes that broke into its carapace with ease and another poking out its eyes. When the match was concluded to Kim's victory, the whole audience held its breath as they saw the two humans' fighters face off. Morxeter continued, The air was electric, I tell you, a feeling as if the titans were about to fight to the death. A roaring inferno of two death machines were about to clash and burn the whole galaxy to the ground. But before the fight started, the humans bowed to each other, then shook each other's hands. Morxator said with disbelief. Then the match started. Liam threw punch after punch while Kim kicked and chopped with his hand, both dodging and blocking the attacks that they sent to each other. The crowd was silent with total awe as they saw Liam slowly lose to his shorter opponent. Then, with one kick to the head, Kim had won the tournament by knockout. Wow. All the lava said in unison. Well, indeed, little ones, Morxador agreed. After the damage of Kim's martial arts was shown to the Republic, all the humans who have learned karate from that point on were immediately classed as deadly weapons and were banned from participating in future Tucker Bells. The funny thing is, when the next one came around, there was another martial art that was introduced and later banned named Judo, and after that, Mai Tai and so many more, that the Republic had decided to create an entirely new tournament for all those human martial arts. You mean the cowboy? asked Lava. Morxatol laughed as he patted the Lava on the head. Yes, the cowboy, and I'm lucky enough to have tickets for all of us to watch. End of story. Story number two. The Useless Human, written by Rosie013. Ilix was saved. She had heard that there was a small contingent of human deathworlders amongst the fleet, but actually managing to contact one under her current circumstances was a godsend. Silently, the human watched her emerge from the dense jungle and approach the crashed life pod. 
Just hours ago, the mustering expedition fleet had been ambushed and torn apart by unknown assailants, scattering falling debris and precious few escape pods across the surface of the uncivilized hellhole of a planet. Enix had been one of the lucky ones. Her raft arrived intact, but alone. With no better plan, she had made out towards the next nearest crash site, desperately hoping for other survivors and not just bits of starship. But a legendary human was much better. He could protect her, help her survive long enough to be rescued. She recalled reading about them in her interspecies lessons. Their great strength and endurance, bravery and heroism, able to survive no matter the circumstances. No wonder they made great warriors. Of course, she had never met one before. They were rare and <clears throat> somewhat uncouth for most civilized inner world folk. But that didn't matter in the slightest right now. Strangely, the human didn't respond to her hails, watching her warily. This sent Elixir's heckles up an end. This was not the friendly greeting that she had envisioned. Fighting her discomfort, she advanced and started to gather some of the ration bars from the pod, sure that the human could step forwards and assist with simple survival task. After a moment, it was clear that it had no intention of helping. Elix turned around to face the human, ready to scold him for his uselessness, when she realized that he was still staring right at her. He hadn't moved an inch. She noticed the bunched muscles beneath his clothing, the way he leaned back against the pod, almost coiled. Predator, her hindbrain screamed into her consciousness. Having badly misread the full situation, Elix swallowed and took a few steps backwards towards the comparative safety of the jungle. The human watched her, unblinking. Terrified at what might be, Elix turned and fled to the undergrowth, her mind awash with violent fates that could soon befall her. She had to find other, non-death world survivors at fast. Captain Locum stared at the retreating alien as it loudly flailed its way through the jungle. He didn't mind that it had helped itself to its depressingly small emergency food supply. He didn't much mind for anything anymore. He'd been dead for hours. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1092 Story number one. They breathe extreme corrosive and sweat diamagnetic solvents. Written by Slow AD 2584 Humans from Earth Class A Deathworld. Stay away from them. Just standing in a room with them will melt your eyeballs. You know that extremely corrosive compound, molecular O2. Yeah, that stuff. So horribly reactive it oxidizes anything it touches, even steel. We use it in heavy industry under strict hazmat-grade XXX control procedures. If it escapes into the workplace, it would literally dissolve any worker in the room. The very aluminium in their blood, becoming aluminium oxide in their veins near instantly. Yeah, that stuff. Planet Earth has 21.5% of that just floating in the atmosphere. Due to a horrible plant life on that death world, releasing it as part of their photosynthesis. The humans, they just breathe it. Actually, use it in their metabolic process. How does that not make free radicals causing molecular mayhem in the cells and DNA molecules is not yet understood. Perhaps they have an incredible scene-sense process, an error-correcting DNA factors that simply outpace the certain corrosion ongoing in their bodies. It seems like too much work, really. I don't know how they can survive with that stuff. 
Then there is that other industrial chemical, dihydromonoxide, the dreaded H2O. Its diamagnetic properties means it dissolves and dilutes, well, pretty much anything it comes into contact with. It also has that horrible surface tension that ensures that once it enters your lattice point structure, it latches on and actually pulls into us by some sort of horror show process called capillary action. And before long, we are melted mush. Well, humans sweat the stuff when they get too hot. In fact, their bodies are 70% H2O. Yep, humans, literal industrial hazmat toxic waste monsters. Why can't their bodies evolve to use more sensible chemical compounds, like the much more stable fluoric acid oceans and the phosphine gas atmospheres of the rest of the galaxy's inhabited worlds? End of story. Story number two. What they didn't tell you about FDL flight. Written by SlowAD2584. The human test pilot, flights, and prototype engineers were all at the restaurants at the end of the proving grounds. It was a bulk freighter that suffered a motivator malfunction and broke down. Forever. On the literal far end of interstellar proving grounds, the freighter was claimed by the resident human madman and converted into a space bar where pilots and engineers could go to blow off steam. Such behavior was not permitted within the proving grounds themselves, for obvious reasons. The proving grounds was a place above the galactic plane, with a nice view of the galaxy tilting upwards as a background, cordoned off by the galactic hegemony. A literal piece of nowhere where prototype ships and equipment can be tested far from anything or anyone that could be harmed by such reckless high-energy experimentation. The testing grounds was called by the humans White Sands High, and the name sort of caught on amongst the other species. You may be wondering about the names. These are test pilots and prototype engineers. They like their code words and their call signs, and the engineers in particular love their nerdy references. It was an odd coincidence that the test pilots and bleeding-edge technology engineers from any technological species all seemed to share the right stuff archetype. Once language barriers were overcome, they were all very much the same sort of crazy. Here, I'm having other blasters, Zaphod, Chuck said. Chuck Yeager was the call sign of the lead human test pilot, first slot to try and break the speed of light in a purely human manufactured craft. The Fod Beeblebrox was an alien space engineer physicist. Very smart. He had three arms and two heads, so of course that was what the pilots made his call sign. The blaster added to Zophon, who had some chemical concoction of yuck that was the alien's version of hard whiskey. It was called something, but the menu listing got scratched out and it was renamed Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster. Because, well, of course it was. Ah, thank you, Chuck, my boy. The human looked at each other, discreetly. This was a good sign. When Zophon started getting all familiar with the humans, that meant he was good and blasted. Zephant was a technological savant from one of the most ancient high-tech civilizations. He knew the ins and outs of practically everything spaceship-related. He was also a bit of an off-putting nerd to his own species, and was a bit of a loner. So he started hanging around the humans, who actually got along great with him. The pilots and engineers were good listeners and always paid for his blasters, and Zephant loved to get drunk. And when Zophod got drunk, he started to talk. 
advanced technological secrets kind of talk. So, what's news, Avod? Hey, I have an idea. Tell us something about our science that we got just plain wrong. That's always a good laugh for you, ain't it? <laughs> sure is, kiddo. <laughs> I mean, you're human still drilling math and timer. Like, um, real or something. Math is just a language you agree to use, and time is just silly. There just is no past nor future. There is only now and now and now. <laughs> and yeah, I'm just right now. Your whole relativity nonsense is just difference in data streams. Your kids got a lot to learn. The engineers hated being told that. It undermined 85% of all Earth science over the last 600 years. But the engineers still used math and time out of routine, habit, and convenience. The relativity being wrong stung the worst, though. The humans thought that they were onto something profound. The first practical flights at 95% the speed of light proved it wrong. There was no time dilation at all. Relativity's flaw was the, now as seen, simplistic notion that what you see is what you get. When really what they saw, the video stream of electromagnetic data, was the thing itself that was messed with to cause the relativistic paradoxes due to the differing speeds and the limiting bandwidth of the speed of light. Everything happened when and where it happens. What the crawl of light speed shows a distant observer cannot be trusted. Nah, Zafod, we've all heard that before. Come on, don't you think of anything different? It's not cool, you know. Continuing to rub the math and time and relativity thing in the engineer's faces. But go on, hit us with something new. We can take it. Chuck said in a fake drunken slur. No human was the least bit intoxicated tonight, and many, many recording devices were on and streaming data dumps to caches embedded in the freighter's hull. Zavod was on a roll. Tonight was looking to be huge. Um, Zavod looked around a bit dizzy, sitting in his chair. Oi, Jaeger, my boy, I heard you were the first to pick and try the superluminal test flight in a few weeks. Don't do it, kiddo. It'll mess with you. Chuck's face went a bit pale. Um, why, Zofod? Is there something we got wrong? This was huge. Was Zofod about to lecture the humans about FTL physics? This info would be priceless. Yeah, kiddo. They got most of it wrong. Your young species so eager to learn, to achieve. Right now, your engineers know just enough to be a danger to the pilots and themselves. No offense. Zofod said, as he realized half of the humans were very engineers that he was referring to. See, uh, they figured out a way to cheat the luminal barrier using, uh, I don't know, was it referential frame shift? No, gravimetric, mm, angular momentum transfer. Ah, ah, yes, bingo! Oh, that takes me back. The old gyro procession kicker. Hard to keep your lunch on those ships. He beamed when he saw the engineers' faces react. He didn't notice other engineers frantically whispering into tablets in the dark corners of the bar. Yeah, that'll work to get you over the hump for sure. But there is something you boys don't know. It's the reason why we never see anything traveling faster than light. And it's why nothing, never, ever comes back. The humans all tried to look chill, like they were only vaguely interested in what Zavat was saying. But you could have heard a pin drop. And it's not what you think it is. It's, um, weird over there, past the luminal limit. Sure, you can't really see anything. But what's worse, 
Mass momentum vectors get inverted. You know how it takes more and more thrust to get closer and closer to the speed of light. Well, kiddo, it takes you more and more energy to slow down on the other side. Sure, you can cheat your way past the limit, but then you'll need near-infinite reverse thrust just to station-keep a certain speed. And no ship can cheat its way back across the barrier. I mean to say, sure, you can extra speed cheat, but then how do you, uh, I don't know, how do you extra stop cheat? Yeah, it's weird over there, as I said. That is there is a beautiful symmetry in the universe enforcing its laws. You are allowed to get clever, but you get just enough loopholes to hang yourself with. Hey, hey uh, my, my drink is empty. A fresh glass was pressed into the hand of his third arm. Zavat was still too drunk to realize just how silent the bar was. Chuck Yeager was skilled with his, um, the gentle nudge to the sofa talking some more. So, um, on my flight, when I punched through, Zavat looked sad. My boy, you'll find yourself sliding faster and faster towards infinite speed and at max acceleration, because you're still foolishly right there at the limit line. Trying to go full reverse will just burn out your thrusters. It's a one-way trip. Just a luminal boom. Say your hurrahs quick and whoop. You're gone like beyond the entire universe and the billions more universes beyond. That is why we never see anything moving faster than light. They all are instantly far, far away. Infinite speed is a hell of a thing to overcome. Better to just jump, um... Zaphod passed out and collapsed on the countertop. The engineers had a lot of work to do. Test flights were cancelled. A lot of math to... Damn it. To talk amongst themselves about, I guess. The humans gently carried Zaphod Beeblebrox to his living space and placed him in a bed to sleep it off. It was the least that they could do. They felt bad kind of taking advantage of Zaphod like this, but consoled themselves that old Zaphod was indeed a pal and was always welcome amongst the humans and the restaurant at the end of the universe, uh, uh, end of the Proving Grounds. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1093. Story number one. In other news, written by Star Stuff Drifter. The Hive Overlord grinned in satisfaction. He evaluated the newly built destroyer class of ship and dreadnoughts that were docked at the orbital manufacturing station. Soon, they would get their revenge. For all the ridicule and shame that had been brought on his clan and species, the rest of the galaxy would feel their wrath once the last ships had been built. Once the Hive ruled most of the known galaxy, until the slave races dared to oppose them. Unforgivable. They would soon know their place once more. And the Hive would claim their rightful place at the top as the Apex species. The Overlord cleaned his mouth warm saliva that had started to collect from his overly eager anticipation of things to come, and was about to head back into the war room when a shrill alarm pierced the halls of the orbital station. The Overlord rushed to the observation station and mentally exchanged data on the situation with the rest of the Hive. The sensors on the outer edges of the station had picked up a large object moving towards their direction. It would not hit their station, but from the looks of it, it was almost as big as one of their dreadnoughts. 
The Hive Overlord quickly ordered his clan members to man all available weapons the station had to offer and fire up any working ship. They could not allow any incident to ruin their carefully crafted plans. Not at this stage. Soon, the object which turned out to be a foreign vessel came nearer, and without hating it, they started firing all the available heavy weaponry in its direction. A lot of shells hit the thick outer plating of the foreign vessel before it started firing back in kind. Soon, the sensors could pick up the various weaponry that were mounted on the foreign vessel, and the Overlord was shocked to see how dangerously armed it was. Most of their dreadnoughts didn't come close to this kind of arsenal, and only the mothership was comparable. No matter, the vessel had to be destroyed. The Hive soon began to lose ships left and right and weapon stations one by one while the foreign spacecraft fired relentlessly without pause, even while most of its hull was on fire and burning. They lost some more dreadnoughts when one of them finally hit a vulnerable point in the hull. The explosion took out the foreign vessel, but it also destroyed a few of their own dreadnoughts in the process. No matter, the battle was won even if they paid the small price. The galaxy would soon pay. In other news, a small postal ship was destroyed in what was assumed to be a pirate attack in an uncharted part of space. The ship, which was controlled by a simple AI, had to change its usual route due to an ongoing uranium leak and an oil spill from two freighters that crushed during a navigational error. Officials say that the black box, once recovered, will shed a light of the event and action will be taken accordingly. The Intergalactic Postal Service apologizes for any inconvenience that are a result of this situation and kindly asks you to file a claim for compensation with their customer service hotline or go directly to the Galactic Web and fill out the corresponding form. And now, the weather with. End of story. Story number two. Nukas written by a glass of whiskey. Do you know, youngling, what the human secret weapon is? The younger officer was not happy being talked down to like this, but he would humor his oldest counterpart for now. Secret weapon? No, I don't know anything about it. He responded while trying to keep a straight face. It's nukes. Of course it's nukes. Everyone knew it was nukes. Humans have even earned the nickname nukers. By far, the worst-kept military secret in the galaxy is that the humans have nukes. You don't say. Ha! <laughs> I know you're laughing at me behind that polite exterior, said the slightly clueless older officer. But tell me this. The Alankas had nukes. The Beltiers had nukes. The Marovoror had nukes. Every single opponent that they ever faced had nukes. Why do they come out on top? No hesitation to use them, the question practically answered itself. They had always deployed a copious amount of nukes in their conflicts. The opposite, in fact, came the answer from his now smug-looking senior. It's precisely that they do that makes them so dangerous. A quirk of their minds, you might say. Really? The people that rained down nukes onto Alanka's planets until they were like glass did so because they were so hesitant to use them. No, you might think me a fool, 
But tell me this. What happened before that? First, nukes are now elementary history. The Alankas launched a surprise attack and destroyed one of their colony. Not destroyed. Slaughtered. What difference does it make? Dead is dead. That's because you're not thinking like a human. To them, death is not death. You're saying that they sometimes survive dying. Although, that would explain a lot of things he heard about them. <laughs> oh, no, of course not. Well, they are remarkably resilient, so it can sometimes seem so. But I assure you, dead humans stay dead. Then what? Human minds see differences in these beings. To them, a reason is needed before raining down nukes on their enemies. But once they have found one, they do not, as you pointed out, remain filled with hesitation. So, the infamous murderers war hungry humans were people with deep ethical dilemmas. Yes, clearly. Why else would they build millions of them? And the stockpiles are there because they practice these ethical dilemmas then? Of course not. They exist to deter their opponents from doing anything they would consider to be unethical. Like attacking them? Yes, like attacking them. Although their range of use will vary depending on how the opponent acts. Only Alanka's planets were glassed, after a lengthy war as well. They have never done anything like that since. Hardly a guarantee. No, no guarantee at all. Then, why not strike first, as suggested by the War Command? War Command is a foolish bunch of idiots. They would rather kill us all than admit a mistake. Have you not listened to a word I said? They have always come out on top in any nuclear exchange. To invite them to use a weapon that they are the masters of is stupid beyond belief. But with a coalition, we are stronger, more numerous, and even smarter than them. How can we lose? How can we lose? How can we win? The Alankas were many and with more worlds than anyone else. The humans used Nurks. The Baltiers had the strongest fleet in the galaxy. The humans used Nukes. The Moroboror had the greatest strategists ever to be seen. The humans used nukes. Then just use copious amounts of nukes against him, as suggested. Do you think that the humans know nothing about how to counter their own strategies? Every single opponent have tried to use nukes against them. Alankis tried glassing their worlds. Baltiers tried nuking their fleets. And Marovarols tried everything under the sun and above it. Nothing. Some strikes here and there succeeded. Do I need to remind you what happened when they succeeded? Humans escalated their usage of the weapon to another level. And I do not think that we have seen what they are truly capable of yet. Not seen what they are capable of. We have only seen what they are capable of. Better stop them before it's too late. At that, he stormed off the bridge before the clearly cuckoo old officer could get him any more riled up. Right before the vote to strike against the humans was not the time. He was clearly on the losing side if he was reduced to acting like this. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. 
I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.